That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Every Friday morning, I tweet out a tweet. It's not the same tweet every week, but I, I put out a tweet every Friday morning that, that asks a question, or I guess opens the door for questions. And I do a Saturday mailbag at johnconzano.com, and I get great questions. I publish the best questions every Saturday. So I ask people, what's on your mind? Have some fun with this. You know, pepper me with questions. And, and it gives me a chance to see where your mind is or where the readers' minds are. What are they thinking about? What are they worried about? Do I get the same question over and over? If so, I kind of know that I'm not doing a very good job of maybe explaining it when I'm answering the I think it's um, – I used to not like the mailbags in part because back in the day the mailbags were probably imposed on me. But I'm doing it now, different kind of mailbag. I'm answering all kinds of questions. I don't have limits on what I can talk about. I don't have anybody telling me what to – write about or focus on this because it gets more clicks i just kind of put it out to readers and they go hey here's what i was thinking about like to just to give you an example i'll, I'll pull up last week's mailbag i think it's a great example of kind of the variety of questions that i get on a weekly basis so last week i had uh somebody ask me who will benefit the most in pac-12 football this coming season from having a bye week prior to their next opponent like who benefits the most and and uh and dan who was on twitter asked the question i was like that is a great question like i had thought to look at bye weeks i of course noticed that usc has two bye weeks on the schedule including one that comes before the pac-12 championship game so if the trojans qualify for the championship game in vegas i'm gonna have a hard time seeing any other bye week as a bigger advantage it's a huge advantage but since we were on the subject, I went to look at this, and I went, and I went. All right, who has, who has uh, beneficial bye weeks, and who doesn't? Now, Washington, it turns out, is the only school in the conference that's got multiple opponents who have a bye the week before they play. The Huskies will play Oregon in week seven. Both teams come off a bye in week six. Then Washington hosts Arizona State the very next week, and Arizona State is coming off a bye. And, and that'll be in week eight. So they're coming off a of week seven by into week eight. Now, that's back-to-back weeks that Washington will have to play an opponent that's coming off a of bye. Now, it's an equal advantage or maybe no disadvantage because they'll both be coming off a of bye, Oregon and Washington, heading into that week seven matchup. But I kind of view the week eight game for Washington as a little bit of a trap, particularly if Oregon beats Washington in week seven. Because you know what a loss can do for a team. Sometimes it fires a team up. Sometimes the team goes, oh, there goes our season. And you have a cascade of emotion the following week where they run into an Arizona State team. So I thought it was an interesting question. 
And then the very next question in the mailbag was uh, from Keith, who asked, hey, what's your go-to for a summer weekend cookout? And he happens to be partial to a good uh, Santa Maria-style tri-tip. Now, I happen to think tri-tip is highly underrated. Like, like tri-tip among meat cuts at your Costco. And by the way, I think Costco has great meat. Tri-tip is kind of like Oregon State. Really solid. It, it's going to get you 10 wins. It's a go-to. People don't start talking about meats by talking about the tri-tip. But the tri-tip is a, it's great. It's great for uh, any cookout. And I think it's highly underrated. That's a 10-win cut right there. Uh, so, you know, I get a chance to talk about the tri-tip in the mailbag. And then, you know, subsequently, I guess, I'm, you know, the, the normal media rights questions come in. And, uh, you know, the Pac-12 are going to get a deal. But I had a Washington State fan who asked a great question last week. Washington State fan wanted to know if the Pac-12 does sign a deal, and I think they will, what will Washington State need to do to make themselves attractive to TV companies in the next realignment cycle? Because if you think about it, if you really, if we're being real and we're looking at the Pac-12 conference, we're being honest with each other, and we're going, okay, who brings the most value among the 10 remaining members? I think we're going to look at TV markets like Phoenix, that's Arizona State, Seattle, that's Washington, brands like Oregon, that's Oregon. We're going to look at Colorado and uh, Coach Prime. Got a, got some brand there. Got a decent media market. I think it's like the 16 media market in the country, Denver. Um, but Washington State is way down the list when it comes to value. And there's nothing that Washington State can do when it comes to improving their TV market. You know, that's the single biggest factor in media rights value, your TV households. Now, Pullman's always going to be Pullman. The school cannot control that. But they are in control of their brand and their on-field success in football and in men's basketball. Colorado, great example of how your brand can sometimes walk in front of the success. We don't know if Colorado's going to win games. Uh, we don't know if the, every other Pac-12 school is going to circle Colorado on the calendar, on the schedule, and go, that's the game that we really need to have because we're sick and tired of hearing about all this Coach Prime stuff and all the recruiting and the transfer portal and it, it, very, it may very well prove that Colorado has a rough first season. I know a lot of people are banking on that. People are all over the map on whether or not Colorado is going to win. But it's, you know, needless to say, it is a great example of how a large investment in a coach can result in games before you've even kicked off the football. Colorado's got a sellout. Their merchandise is up. They are going to be uh, the uh, big noon uh, feature on Fox the first two weeks of the season. Like, Colorado's going to get some run because of what they did. And I think Washington State could look at that and go, look, all right, you know, it's not like they're going to fire Jake Dickert and hire, uh, you know, a football coach who's going to be the equivalent of Coach Prime, but I think you can invest in football and you can invest in men's basketball in the next five or seven years and try to regularly participate in the postseason in both of those sports or, or you know, spend like you want to. And I think Washington needs to make a bigger investment in those sports. Let's just look at football, for example, okay? The, the, the assistant coaching salary pool at Washington, the Huskies, $7.5 million. $7.5 million Kalen DeBoer has to spend on his staff. At Washington State, $3.7 million. So we're talking about, you know, about half the amount of money that Jake Dickert has at his disposal when building a staff. So... 
I think that's an important distinction. What can Washington State control? What can Oregon State control? I think Oregon State is doing a better job than Washington State investing in football, investing uh, you know, in, in the stadium. Uh, I think Oregon State can do better in men's basketball. But I think there's definitely um, definitely some emphasis on on football in particular that Washington State needs to pick up. So I, I'm not just talking about the mailbag to talk about the mailbag, but it got me thinking that Fridays on this show, maybe the opening segment every Friday, should be the equivalent of the mailbag. So I want to know, what's on your mind? We used to do a segment called Johnny on the Spot where you could ask anything. You could ask me about grilled cheese sandwiches if you wanted to. You could ask me, you know, paper or plastic, mountains or ocean. Um, you know, hey, if, if you want to have fun with it, have fun with it. But I'm going to open the phone lines now, and I want you to tell me, like, what is on your mind? What, what question have you been wondering about? And there are no dumb questions. Just like the mailbag, I will uh, entertain all questions. And uh, I think if you are somebody who is tuned into the Pac-12, you want to know about media rights? Let's talk about it. You want to know about Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference coming up on June 5th? Let's talk about it. Uh, you want to know uh, what I think about the downfall of American newspapers? Uh, let's talk about it. Um, parenting? Let's talk about it. Movies? Let's talk about it. I saw a terrible movie this week. So bad I don't even want to really tell you what it was other than to save you the harm of having to go see that movie. I'll tell you what it was coming up. But I'm going to open the phone lines. 503-417-7575. What is on your mind? Can we duplicate on radio? What I do on print comes Saturdays where, uh, you know, people just pepper me with questions. Somebody asked me in the, in the uh, mailbag last week, you know, this station announced that I, I, I signed a multi-year contract extension. The syndicated show will go on. They asked, do you use an agent or do you negotiate your own contract? I thought it was a great question. Yes, I have an agent. Uh, he's become a trusted ally and a friend. And, uh, you know, I'm too busy writing a column, doing a radio show, being a husband, helping the kids learn how to ride their bikes. I'm, I found that having somebody to help navigate that landscape is really helpful to me. It frees me up to do the stuff I'm better at. Also, you know, in a negotiation, they're always trying to beat you up. Station management, they're going to try to beat you up, just like, you know, the, the teams try to beat the players up. They'll uh, say, well, you didn't uh, do this or you could do better at that. And I don't really want to even want to hear that stuff. I got to focus on, you know, I don't want to develop bad feelings over that. So I let my agent play, play the role of somebody who has to hear that or gets to push back. Um, another question that came up in the mailbag, and you'll love this one, Stephen. The question came, if they had been completely healthy, let's start with that caveat. Which trailblazer would have been more impactful? Greg Oden or Brandon Roy, who who would have had the more impactful career had they stayed healthy? Do you agree that it's Greg Oden? 100%, yeah. I think it's Greg Oden for sure. Because at that time, there really wasn't many guys in the league that were his size and his athleticism. And I think if he stays healthy, like he's one of a kind. I looked. I, I answered it by saying this. Like I, I love Brandon Roy's game. And the thing I like about Brandon Roy is like when he had the ball – Nothing was happening faster than Brandon Roy wanted it to happen. He was dictating pace. And uh, I, I think few players have, are, are able to do that. I see Damian Lillard doing that. I think you have to, first of all, you have to be a player who has the ball in your hands. But, but Brandon Roy dictated pace, and he was so, it was so much fun to watch. But I agree on Odin. 
I remembered a conversation I had with former Blazers GM Kevin Pritchard in the run-up to that draft in 07. Remember, they were the billboards were up, Odin, Durant, honk once, honk twice. I went into the practice facility in Tualatin, and Pritchard was at his uh, desk, and he had he had some of the, like a folder where they had done some of their, uh, I guess some of their evaluation of Durant was sitting on his desk, and he kind of pushed it to the side. I said, what is that? And he goes, I don't know. And I said, okay, what do you think? Tell me in front of the draft. Don't wait till after the draft to tell me who 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 it was you really wanted. Pritchard said that he said we think Durant is so good that he's going to be a ten time All Star. That was his quote. And then he rubbed his forehead. I'll never forget it. And in the next breath, he said, "But we think Odin might win ten championships, and that's why they picked Greg Odin." And I think I think it's the same debate with a healthy Brandon Roy versus Greg Odin. Like I think. A healthy Brandon Roy would have been a seven or eight time All Star. A healthy Greg Oden, you might have won multiple championships. Let's go to the phone lines five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. Question on your mind? What is on your mind? Have fun with it. Here's Nate and Kaiser. He's going to start us off. Nate, go ahead. Hey John, um, Oregon State's playing LSU today, or not LSU, but they're playing in the LSU Regional today, and our Familiar umpire Greg Street is umping the region regional. I don't know if you remember him from the uh, past altercations with LSU, but he called outside pitches strikes against Oregon State. He was the one that called the oh ground rule double. I think it was a fair ball when it clearly bounced out of bounds. It's been pretty one-sided. How is he still able to umpire that series? Yeah, I, I, I think. I love I love the question. I just love that you're so tuned in. Nate's tuned in to like who the umpire is. Fans at Oregon State are tuned in to who the umpire is. I can tell you who can't afford to be tuned in to, you know, who's the umpire is, are the Oregon State players. They can't afford to be worried about that other team. But Nate's right. There are three teams that will be on the field, and there are three teams on the court in a basketball game. One of them is home team, visiting team, and then the officiating team. We all know that. And I just hate that we're in an era where people know that and i know the calls i remember the calls everybody was questioning whether you know did that guy want lsu to win is he a sec fan uh my hope is and, and i wrote about this i think a few days ago uh i was writing about conspiracy theories i think it was tuesday and i was talking about you know we came on the show and i started talking about the grassy knoll and the jfk thing and bruce barnum's dad who was a pallbearer for the funeral and i said you know what is it about a conspiracy theory that sports fans particularly like the uh, the frozen envelope and Patrick Ewing, um, you know uh, David Stern and in officiating. Um, there are so many conspiracy theories that get put out there, but you but you have a case here where you've got an umpire in this regional that's got some history with one of the fan bases. And you know Dale Scott, who listens to this show, Major League Baseball crew chief Jim Joyce, uh, legendary umpire in Major League Baseball. Both those guys insist when I talk to them about umpiring that umpires and officials just want to get it right. And sometimes they blow a call. Maybe the guy blow, blew a call and it happened to go against Oregon State twice. Maybe the guy's got an ax to grind. I don't know. But in today's world, I think it would be really difficult for an umpire or an official to le- legitimately come into a situation where they've got an ax to grind against a team and not have people notice it. Now, I do believe they're human, too. And I have seen cases, and I've talked to umpires and officials who don't like head coaches. And I don't know 
how they can objectively officiate a game or umpire a game. You see, judges in court cases that will recuse themselves. Maybe uh, this umpire needs to recuse himself from the series. But I'm going to go with the theory that sometimes bad calls happen. Sometimes they go against you know a team twice and it looks suspicious. But I want to believe these umpires and officials are just doing the best that they possibly can do. And um, have had and talked with multiple umpires who say, hey, I, I, we're human. We miss calls. But I just don't want to believe that there's a conspiracy. Did I answer that right, Stephen? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right on that. We talked about this before. I just think there's so much, there's so many eyeballs on the games right now that we're so aware of, you know, everyone's saying the games are rigged that they, they would just be too obvious and we would all notice it. So I think it's just too hard at this point. Like, it's too much, there's too much information out there that we see already to say, yeah, th- these umpires and refs are really impacting the game in a way that they want to impact it. I think you're right on with that. I got a question for you, John, actually. Can yeah, I, can fire, I away. You? fire away. Um, you know, as a uh, as a degenerate gambler, I love uh, gambling. Do you think there's ever going to be a day where I can bet legally on college football mm. from my from my own phone in the state of Oregon? In the state of Oregon. Okay, that's that is you know, and uh, Peter Courtney, the former president of the Oregon sten- Senate, the 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 chief of the state legislature, the chief lawmaker in the land in the state of Oregon, who just retired this last session or this last year. Um, he and I talked about this at length. He had proposed the bill that would allow legalized wagering. It got uh, essentially shut down uh, for people who didn't know. Uh, you know, it basically was um, you know the legal equivalent of uh, filibustering or the legal equivalent of you know kill the bill is what he you know the terminology that he used because what they did is the lobbyists, they being the lobbyists for the tribal casinos came in and basically in the hearing for it was it was house bill 1503 basically in the hearing um they ended up uh tried trying to uh you know basically ordering a bunch of uh studies and ordering uh, uh you know some committees and let's have some discussion about it and you can literally hear the frustration in peter courtney's voice when uh, i asked him about regulation and collegiate wagering on this show. Oregon needs regulation and oversight for college sports. Although college sports betting is common, Oregonians don't have a way to place their bets legally. The unregulated block market only encourages high wagers and unsafe betting practices. All right, there he was on the floor trying to... uh trying to get uh, that thing passed. Here's what he told me on uh, his stance on uh, the gambling bill. I want to see if I can get to this. Call me a hypocrite. (laughs) Tell me I've sinned and I'm living with the effects of sin. Yeah, it is. I don't gamble. I don't like it. I I opposed the Oregon lottery years ago. I was in the legislature when it was passed by the public. But, you know, uh, in the end, again, uh, we have grown to rely on gambling receipts for many different things. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna. If it, I just hope it doesn't get out of hand. But yeah, I, I'm gonna support this bill. Uh, and you, you right to point out that I wasn't there. You're right to point out that I'm weak. I'm giving into my weakness. And you're right to point out that I should be ashamed of myself. That's right. I'm weak and I'm ashamed of myself. And I'm gonna support the bill. All right. What happened is they ended up killing the bill. 
by they being the lobbyists, by arguing that they needed to do more studies. And so, yes, I think you will be able to eventually place a wager, Stephen, long, long, winded, winding answer. But I think it's going to take um, the tribal casinos backing down because I think right now that's where that is what they are protecting by keeping the collegiate games off the docket. They're protecting Spirit Mountain. They're protecting um, Chinook Winds. They're protecting uh, A&A to some extent as well because they know that people will uh, drive to those casinos if they want to legally place a wager. But I just think there's a lost opportunity. Like if you think about it, the state has one arm tied behind its back when it comes to this gambling business. You'd never operate a business like this where you go, hey, look, we can serve everything on the menu but a beverage. If you want a beverage, you've got to go to another restaurant. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. If you wanted that restaurant to be successful, you'd say, "Hey, you can, you can. Uh, here's a liquor license. Here, you know, you can have here cold drinks. Let's get you some ice." Like it, they would never do that, and they've done that in the state of Oregon. Peter Courtney, uh, the state senator, he wanted to have the money from collegiate wagering provide scholarships for students who wouldn't otherwise be able to go to college. Like, who could be against that? That would, that would be a great byproduct of of the bill that got passed. So we're gonna have to find another lawmaker. That will bang the drum for this, but because he is now, uh, you know, sitting on a beach, literally. I, I I reached out to him a couple weeks ago, and he was in Hawaii. So we got to find out who is sports friendly in the state legislature. Maybe we'll find out. Coming up, Nigel Burton, Pac-12 Network analyst, will be joining us at four o'clock. If if you have a kid who wants to go to football camp this summer, how about this? Nigel's going to offer five BFT listeners to send their children to camp for free. He will scholarship the kids in. He's also going to talk about Oregon, Oregon State, Washington, Washington State, and the rest of the Pac-12. But you want your kid to go to football camp, Nigel Burton's camp this summer? Nigel Burton's giving away five BFT listeners can send their kids to camp for free. They'll scholarship him in. He's coming up at 4 o'clock. I want you here for it. Punch and Audio is next. Leave it here. Made the mistake the other night. Of going to see a movie called You Hurt My Feelings. Have you seen this movie? You Hurt My Feelings. I have not, no. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, um, she plays a writer, and basically the premise is, and I'm not afraid to give this away because I think it's a bad movie and you should not go see it. I rated this movie on my 1 to 100 scale, um, and I don't, I don't do this. I can't think of a movie I've rated lower. I rated it a 40... Eight out of a hundred. It had one decent scene in the whole movie. I kind of chuckled. I had nothing else that was mildly funny or interesting. It uh, kind of reminded me, like I like Julia Louis Dreyfus, but it kind of reminded me that unless you have good writing, and uh, you know, a an actor. I, I don't think she's a great actress. I think she's good. I, I think you need great writing to really have her star in a movie. She just didn't carry the movie. And the premise of the movie is she is a writer. She's written a memoir. She's written a second book. And her husband is very supportive of her, and her husband's a therapist. And he's telling her how, you know, he's always telling her how great a writer she is and how he loves her book and everything. She sent the book off to her literary agent, and the literary agent's not really calling back. And he's kind of reassuring her 
hey, it was a great book. It's a great book. You know, he's doing, he's being like that spouse that is maybe telling a little white lie because down deep he doesn't think the book's any good. And he happens to be in a store with, uh, I think, his brother-in-law, and they're shopping for socks, which is essentially what the movie feels like. You're shopping for socks for about an hour and a half. It's just, you know, what are we doing here? And they are having a conversation about her book, and she and uh, her sister see them through the window, and they go, oh, let's go in and say hi. And as they come up behind him, he's basically telling his brother-in-law the book sucks, and he's read it 20 times, and he does, you know, he just keeps telling her it's okay. And, and, and all right, like, that's mildly amusing as a concept, but you better have good writing around it to pull it off. But it kind of felt to me like, you know, an afternoon spent uh, sock shopping. It's all it was. I didn't. I I was not amused. I, I there was one other lady in the theater who got up and walked out, like she's just bored. I fell asleep alternately at different points. Kind of nodded off, came back in. Is it any? Is it picked up? Nope, nope. And that was it. And the only scene in the whole movie that I thought was m- mildly interesting was this couple that came into therapy with the therapist that kept arguing with each other. Uh, they wanted a refund because they weren't getting. Uh, they didn't feel like they were getting help. Can you get a refund from a therapist? Like, that was a mildly amusing, like, four minutes. The rest of the movie was a dud. Stay away from it. It's called, uh, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry I saw the movie. Uh, I'd rather go see Cocaine Bear than go see that again. Uh, what's the worst movie you've seen? You ever uh, seen one like that where you just go, eh, doesn't work? I, it, not, I, I would say this. You know, I'm not, like, a uh, huge film buff, right? Like, I love just, like, a comedy but one of the movies I saw, and it was back in the day, it was called Strange Wilderness. It okay. had, um, what's his name? Alan Zahn in it, something like that. Jonah Hill was in it. Justin yeah. Long. All those guys. I like all those guys. They're all, Steve Zahn, sorry, not Alan. Yeah, you, li- you yeah, like those I people. I like those guys. The movie was so awful. Like, I I didn't finish it. <laughs> I, I I bought it when Blockbuster was going out of out of, uh, out of of their stores, and they were selling everything. Like, I bought it for, like, a dollar. You know, I was in college. I was oh, like, yeah. oh, cool. I'll buy, buy some movies. Oh, those guys are in it. Cool, I'll buy it. I watched it, and it was like they were like looking for Bigfoot, and it just was bad. I just this doesn't work. Yeah, it just did not work, and it was all guys that I like in it. So I was just so shocked that it was so bad. But I remember not laughing at all and uh, giving away as a white elephant gift uh, to my family one one year. <laughs> Basically, the premise of the movie I'm looking it up now is that it was a TV show about animals. Yeah, and uh, uh, but this main character's father dies, and he inherits the show. And then the uh, studio head says, you have two more weeks to make the show interesting. And so they bring up a story about Bigfoot in Ecuador mm-hmm. and take a long a long road trip and try to save this show. But they were trying to get Bigfoot on film. Yeah, it, yeah. it was, uh, yeah, just was not successful. Did they movie. get Bigfoot on film? I honestly don't know. I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm just, sure that they did. It. Sure that it was, has, there, has there been any shows that you know are thought to be really good that you just didn't like? Because, like, for me... Ted Lasso, everyone loves mm-hmm. it. I don't like. Okay. I don't like that show very much. I thought it was really boring, and I thought it was just cheesy. Um, and so, like, is there any show or movie like that that is widely considered to be really good okay. that you just you, don't like? You, you didn't like Ted Lasso. That is ridiculous. That's a great show. It's very. It's very mm-hmm. fake, sports wise. Yeah, it's not supposed to be real. It's well, not. They, they would never. A Premier League team would never hire a football coach <laughs> from Wichita State to come under- run the team. You have to suspend 
disbelief. I don't want to. I I, I don't like the whole motivational thing. Like people trying to inspire me, that doesn't work for me. And so that that show just is not made for Stephen Vaughn, and Mm. I am willing to admit that. Wow, this is a awakening moment. Um, yeah, I, I the Marvel movies, all of the Marvel movies don't don't like. I didn't. I don't love that kind of stuff. And I know people do. They get into them, and you know, people. Everyone's telling me that the latest movie that's coming out, Flash. Michael Keaton comes back as Batman and all that, but it's it's going to be great and all this stuff. And I just I I have a hard time getting fired up for the Marvel movies, and everybody else is. And it's I feel like I don't get it, like that somehow I don't understand what everybody else is getting. Like I don't get the joke. I when I'm watching those, I go I I it just yeah it's a bunch of fighting and flash you know special effects and all this stuff, and the story's okay, but. Yeah, I need I need a story. I need a storyline that works. Yeah, it's like that with like Star Wars for me. Uh, my wife was watching The Big Bang Theory before bed, mm, and yeah. I feel so dumb watching that show because I don't understand any of the jokes they make because it's all about like comic books. I just don't understand, and so I'm like, this show is terrible. I just I literally can't get it. I don't I don't understand. I want to like it. I can't. It's it's almost like I think that happens in sports sometimes too. Like. There'll be a series that's going on, or even a pl- like the playoffs as a whole. Do you think the NBA playoffs this year have been great? Like, have they been compelling? Have they been interesting? Well, I'll tell you this: Game one of the NBA Finals was not. That was a very bad game, not interesting at all. The Nuggets completely dominated that game from the start to the end, and it wasn't very entertaining at all. I'm afraid that that's what the series is going to be because Denver yeah. is so much better. So, yeah, I would say the NBA playoffs has been okay, but then you look at you know the the conference finals. The Nuggets destroyed the Lakers. The Heat and Celtics played, but a lot of blowouts in those games. Like, even the Game 7 was a little underwhelming as the Heat controlled that game. I would say it's been below average so far for the entire playoffs. I think sometimes that, obviously, the the big stage is the finals, right? And I don't, like, I think the playoffs have been really different and interesting in that we had a 7 seed in the West in the Western Finals. We had an 8 seed in the East. You had an 8 seed make the NBA Finals. This is not David Stern's league. This is Adam Silver's league. This is new. I'm going to roll with it. This is interesting. We saw a team that was down three zip come back to force a game seven in the East final. Um, You know, Jimmy Butler's been compelling, but I'm with you. Unless the finals deliver, I think we have to judge the totality of the playoffs on the finals. Like, you can't have a bad Super Bowl and then go, hey, the NFL playoffs were just great. You can say it had its moments, but ultimately we judge – each sports postseason by the championship series. Did it deliver us a great series? And I think the same thing happened a little bit with the NCAA tournament in that we had, you know, Cinderella's and Cinderella's and we had all these upsets in the mid-majors and here comes San Diego State making the final and then UConn, you know, kind of snuffed them out in the in the final. And, and I think people walked away from the NCAA tournament and went, oh, it wasn't a great tournament. Well, it was because the there was a it was kind of a dud, the championship game. It was interesting that San Diego State was in it and they came back and made it a game at one point, but it was never really it wasn't a great game. It didn't deliver that way. And I and I think you're right about this series, you know, in I really feel like Miami needs to win game 2. Like otherwise if it if they go down 2 zip, I kind of think that people will begin to tune out going up. Eh, Denver's halfway there. Give him the ring already. I agree with you. And just you know, you watch Nikola Jokic, and if people haven't watched him before, you watch him now. He's just, he's unbelievable, and he makes just you know we we talked about yesterday. Uh, Legler called him the most deceptive deceptive player in the league he's ever seen. I said he's the most unselfish 
And there was numerous replays where he had open layups and he's kicking out the guys for three. And he took one shot in the first quarter and he completely dominated the quarter. Like it's the guy is amazing and Miami has nobody to match him. I know Bam's a solid defender, but they just don't have the firepower. I really think the Nuggets are either going to sweep them or win in five. Like I'm with you. If Miami doesn't win the game two, I mean this series could be over real quick. And I kind of think like that's the game to bet this game two. If you're going to bet on any of these games and you're going to take Miami and points, that I feel like this game two is kind of the game because I, if if anything, this is the game where I might expect Denver to has a little bit of a letdown. They won so they won so effectively in game one. And to see Miami go, hey, like there's some urgency here on Miami's uh, front. We'll see how that are, goes. Are we going to downgrade this championship if Denver does win because they beat the eight seed Heat, the seven seed uh, Lakers, and then they beat the Suns naturally. in the second round? Yeah, naturally. Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't, but naturally we will because we, what do we do? We judge all champions based on who they beat. I can remember when Phil Mickelson finally broke through at Augusta. I was there all those years ago when he won the fir- his first tournament at Augusta. Tiger wasn't there. And everybody went, well, you know, it was great for Phil. It's a great moment. Everybody celebrated it. But in the background, there was a murmur like, you know, Tiger, you know, Tiger wasn't playing. And, you know, he was hurt. And he, it, it, you know, you need, you know, Muhammad Ali needed George Foreman and Joe Frazier. You know, he needed, uh, you know, Sonny Liston. He, you need that validation. It, I even think like Usain Bolt needed, you know, Justin Gatlin, you know, for to say to beat him and and validate himself. And I think great teams do that to each other. And I and I think in some weird way, like the Trailblazers not breaking through in that era where you know Michael Jordan was dominating. And you know Michael Jordan he needed the Pistons, he needed the Knicks in the Eastern Conference. It validated him. And I and I worry that you know I think Denver's really good, like obviously really good. And Nikola Jokic, the comparisons he's getting, you know, and the way people are talking about him, I I gotta say this from a Portland standpoint, I kind of wonder, would we have got that with Arvidas Sabonis had the Soviet Union not stood in the way of him coming to play in the NBA? I mean, it's it's possible. I mean, you watch you watch any video of him when he's younger, it kind of looks like Nikola Jokic. Like yeah. I would imagine that's what it would be like. And, uh, yeah, I'm with you, man. Denver's a good team, but the path they've had, there'll be two eight seeds and a seven seed rolling into the finals. It's not their fault, but it's, it's it, not. It's, you're going to hold it against them. They I, will. I will, and I will, too, because the Heat, they are the worst team to ever make the NBA Finals. They have a negative point differential in the season. It's the first time since the 50s that has happened. Like, this is the worst team to ever make the NBA Finals, and Denver's going to roll them. I am not disagreeing with you. Leave it here. We'll play some punch and audio. We'll give you our big splash. That's next. Well, Mark... Mark Wasikowski and the Oregon Ducks took care of business today in the Nashville Regional. 5-4 win over Xavier. Ducks uh, getting a win, getting the pitching two in the seventh, uh, really sealed it for them. And uh, they will uh, stay alive in that double elimination bracket. Uh, Oregon State still yet to play, as we mentioned uh, earlier in the show. Some people worried about the umpires, and don't focus on the umpires. I hope Oregon State doesn't make it matter. They're in the Baton Rouge Regional. Oregon State a favorite today, minus 160 on the money line, by the way, against Sam Houston. That game uh, coming up at 5 o'clock on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, we're going to play some punch and audio. we got great sound as always. Here we go. 
We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Brett Yormark, the Big 12 Conference Commissioner speaking to media, said uh, he's got a North Star when it comes to conference expansion. What does Yormark mean? Here he is, punching. We have some guiding principles, you know, when we think about expansion. I mean, it's all strategic here. Um, And at the top is the academic alignment and the leadership and the cultural fit and the geography and the athletic performance and the upside that is that that a potential institution has as they would potentially you know join the big 12 and we think about all those things as a collective group and we discussed all those guiding principles this week um so hopefully that helps kind of framing for you and crystallizes for you how we're thinking about it it doesn't really crystallize anything for me basically we think about everything and uh, and we use those as guiding principles. I, what I hear him saying there, though, as I hear him talking to his constituents more than he's talking to media, as he's talking about the academics and the cultural fit, I mean, that's the language of presidents and chancellors. Be sure of it. That is very different than, uh, you know, we're open for business, which is what he started with. I thought it was interesting, too, that Yormark told media that they're going to rebrand the Big 12 Conference it won't be a logo change. They'll just do some rebranding. So I think it's interesting. Um, I you know I know that bosses always come in. It's the first thing they do. They want to rebrand. They want to you know. Do we need a new logo? That's what everybody looks at. Um, it, it's just interesting to kind of watch this. Keep in mind, you know, I was telling somebody yesterday off air. They were asking me about conference expansion. It is driven by TV dollars, okay? It's not driven by coaches. It's not driven by brands of programs. It's driven by television money. The Big Ten Conference expanded years ago and took Maryland and Rutgers. They were not after Maryland, and they were not after Rutgers. They were after Washington, D.C., and New York, TV markets. The Big Ten expanded this last year, announced they were taking UCLA and USC. Not really after USC and UCLA. They're after Los Angeles. You talk about massive realignment or massive moves when it comes to expansion. The only other move that registered was Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12 and going to the SEC. And that was a big play by by the SEC. This other stuff that everybody's talking about, you know, would Colorado go to the Big 12? Would the Big 12 want to try to poach Arizona or Arizona State? It's not enough from a media dollar standpoint to justify a move like that. It's, it's you know, look, if we're being real, step back. It's a lateral move at worst, at best. It's not a game-changing move for the Big 12. It's not a game-changing move for those entities. It is nothing like Maryland or Rutgers to the Big Ten. It's nothing like USC and UCLA to the Big Ten. It's nothing like Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC. Doesn't, those those were those were massive moves. Doesn't it with the talk of like a rebrand, like a refresh of it, isn't it just 
scream that they're going to transition to more of a basketball school and try to go after Gonzaga or UConn. That's kind of the rumors out there. Yeah, I think he. T- I think too. Yormark's done so much talking, and I, kind of, I actually kind of admire the guy. Like, I, I don't want, I don't want to be mis, you know, misconstrued here. My thoughts. I actually admire that he, te- he leans proactive, but I also think he's talked so much that he kind of has to have something to show for all the bluster at the end of this. And and I don't think he's going to have Colorado or Arizona State or Arizona or. He's not breaking up the Pac-12 conference. That block of 10, I continue to be told that the block of 10 feels solid. The numbers are coming down the pipeline. They feel good about what they see. They're moving along. It will be a summertime decision. I hear all that stuff coming out of the Pac-12 still. Nothing has changed despite some of the reports that are out there. But you're right, Stephen. Like maybe the face-saving move is for the Big 12 to go, we're all about basketball. That's the brand move. That's where we see opportunity. That's where we see uh, some some higher ceiling. And, you know, maybe they offer Gonzaga. But I, if I'm Gonzaga, why would you leave where you are unless it's game-changing money? You're in the WCC. You have an unbalanced distribution of revenue. You're keeping your money. You have your own deal with ESPN. You, you want to go to the Big 12 where you have to play Kansas and Baylor and Houston? I wouldn't. Just continue to make the turn in a down year. Gonzaga's a three seed. I mean, I think I think Yormark's going to have to have something to show for his bluster. But I don't think it's going to be a Pac-12 football school. Chris Sims talking about Brock Purdy and Sam Darnold and Trey Lance a little bit in 49er land. Who's going to be the quarterback? Sims talks about the veterans more than he talks about uh, Trey Lance, the veteran Darnold in. I guess the second year Brock Purdy, not a veteran. Punch it. First, they're still a part of the fan base in, Fort, in San Francisco and things where I feel like they're still like, wait, you're not going to let Trey Lance compete with Brock Purdy? And it's like, no, we're not. Brock Purdy, I mean, the 49ers finally got something here and got something they can build on for the future. You know, That's why I think they probably wanted to trade Trey Lance so they could set it up for, hey, this is guys our, our leader will go from there. But I also think within those signals, yeah, and I agree with you, I think the other conversation is, yeah, they're setting it up for Sam Darnold to beat out Trey Lance. I mean, Sam Darnold's better than Trey Lance, period. There's no question about that. Sam Darnold's played a good amount of football. And, yeah, it's not been always great looking, but there's still a lot there to tell you it could be great looking. He's been in some crap situations like we've talked about. You're around crap a lot. You know, you're going to start smelling like it. It's going to get on you. That's the way it goes. Man, should have led with that, Chris Sims. Put it on a T-shirt and a bumper sticker. Trey Lance uh, may go down as the Kyle Shanahan, John Lynch mistake of this 49ers era. I don't know. At some point, they have to hand him the keys and, and see what's there. But I don't think they're at that point. I think they like what Brock Purdy delivered a year ago. And I think Sam Darnold is definitely their 1B in that conversation. Adam Silver kind of dropped a uh, smoke bomb last night during the NBA Finals Game 1. He's talking about the John Morant investigation. Said he doesn't really want to be distracting. But then he was totally distracting. Punch it. In terms of the timing, um, we've uncovered a fair amount um, of additional information. I think since I was still asked about the situation, I would say we probably could have brought it to a head now, but 
we made the decision, and I, and I believe the Players Association agrees with us, that it would be unfair to these players and these teams um, in the middle of the series to announce the results of that investigation. And it seemed better to park um, that at the moment, at least any public announcement. And my sense now is that shortly after the conclusion of the finals, we, we will announce the outcome of that investigation. I mean, you can't say that. I have children, okay? I got a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. Uh, she'll be nine next week, okay? So seven and nine. I can't tonight at dinner be like, I have something I want to tell you. And, uh, you know, I just don't want to distract from your dinner. So I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you, you know, a couple days from now. It doesn't fly. It's a terrible distraction. Just saying that. Just come out and say what you found. You know, dole out the punishment. It's John Moran has been a distraction throughout the playoffs. It will continue to be a distraction. I think that Adam Silver kind of just basically started a smoke bomb and then walked away. Sounds Dude, like what you make of that? Sounds like he's, it sounded like he's going to be suspended for a long time. That's what I make it out as. Is that Silver kind of basically said, I don't want to drop this now because it's going to rock the NBA world. Yeah, because I think he's, he's done it even worse by doing that. I don't know. Finally, Paul Feinbaum talked about the SEC. They don't care about the optics of going to an eight-game schedule. Punch it. They really don't care what the optics are because <laughs> they are the SEC, uh, and they've won 13 out of the last 17 national championships, including four straight. So, And, and the commission, Commissioner Sankey told me, hey, uh, the optics weren't too bad out uh, in L.A. a couple of months ago when Georgia was eviscerating TCU 65-7. to Look, I, I agree with Feinbaum on this. I think what the SEC does better than any other conference, they're a good friend of themselves. They don't have to change this way they schedule. It's working for them. They're dominating the playoff. Nigel Burton coming up. Leave it right here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. Well, the Nigel Burton football camp is in its 12th year. Third graders through eighth graders in the 2023-2024 school year are eligible uh, this football camp is uh, held at Jesuit High School. It's a great camp. Nigel Burton's going to be joining us here in a moment, but this camp's like 18 days away. If you are interested in going to the camp, it starts June 20th to the 23rd. Basically, it's a 12.30 to 4 p.m. day for your kid. The camp registration is $230 if you go online to NigelBurtonFootballCamps.com. But Nigel has been kind enough. We were talking about this before the show. He's got he's got some sponsors that will scholarship some kids in. So if you have a kid, third grade to eighth grade, he's agreed to do five scholarships for kids third grade to eighth grade. Uh, 503-417-7575 is the number. First five callers that call in, you're going to need to give uh, your name and your phone number. We will pass that along to Nigel. Um, in it, The first five to call in at that number will get a scholarship into the camp. Your kid can go to the football camp, um, and uh, there you go. First five at 503-417-7575. Grab those spots if you have a kid. Who wants to go to camp? Nigel Burton joining us now. Did I get that right? Did I get it all right? 
I think you did better than I could have ever dreamed of doing. This is why they pay you the big bucks, Johnny. <laughs> I, uh, I, I was trying to figure out uh, the ages of the camp, you know, and, and give me an idea because you're out, you're out there third grade to eighth grade. Um, that's, that's a good time to, like, develop skill set, learn some football. Are, is, this, is this camp okay for kids maybe who have never played before? Oh, of course, yeah. And to be honest with you, look, it used to be K through eight, and uh, I'm not gonna lie, there were a couple of five and six year olds who broke me. <laughs> I realized that, like, because I was always worried, John. I was always worried. I'm like, man, you know, I'm an old, I'm an old grizzly college football coach. I, I don't want to make these little kids cry if I like, you know, I'm trying to like get them to pay attention. And what I realized was it's they actually it was it was the opposite. They made me cry. Oh. And they was like, they're killing me right now. So uh so yeah, I was like, oh, maybe maybe kindergarten is a little a little too young. But look, honestly, if there's a first or second grader, you've got a first or second grader and they just they're really into it and they can just pay attention, I don't care. It's not that big a deal. It was just it was one it was a couple years we had kindergartners and I would go home and and I'm not gonna lie. Um, a lot of times I had to I had to have a few beers just to get through the day. <laughs> to get through the day. I was like, it's the 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 eighth graders are not the problem. The sixth graders are great. They're the best. Fifth, fourth, the kindergartners almost destroyed me. I've I've I I have broken down. I have coached in the NFL for a cup of coffee with the Denver Broncos. I have. Coach guys were all pros who had the whole ego thing going, and no problem. It was it was a six year old named Dexter that almost killed me. <laughs> Always <laughs> and that's Dexter. All it was. <laughs> Always Dexter. Um, that's how it goes. Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. First five to grab those scholarships. Uh, we'll go to the camp. Get your kid scholarshiped into the camp. Nigel, uh, you you mentioned the NFL. You've coached at Portland State. You've coached in college. Uh, you mentioned the cup of coffee in the NFL. How different is the coaching at each level? When you when you get to the NFL level, how is that different maybe than when you're coaching a high school kid or you're coaching even in the Pac-12? Well, I mean, obviously from a knowledge base it's different, right? I mean, when you're coaching in the league, you're not really trying to explain what cover two is. For the most part, they they know that. What was interesting to me, what was funny was, because I was, I was with Coach Shanahan and we had – you know, Al Wilson was our middle linebacker. Well, here, here's the part that was really a mind-blowing experience for me. I ended up coaching a friend of mine who I played with at the University of the Pacific, Donnie Spragan, was on that team. Hmm. And so I'm trying to get Donnie, like, hey, you know, so we, I'd go, you know, we'd catch up after practice, and, and I'd be like, hey, Donnie, like, I don't want to mess you up, man. I know you're trying to make this team. He's like, listen, jerk, you're the coach. Like, <laughs> just tell me what I'm supposed to do here. I'm like, yeah, but, like, I just, like, I want to make sure you make it. I don't want to, like, mess you up. Uh, but we, we kind of were, we were in that year. It was the year after they won the Super Bowl. You know, Terrell Davis was still on the team. Shannon Sharp was our tight end. Um, you know, uh, John Elway had just retired. And so Steve Berline was our was our quarterback. So it was, it was kind of an interesting transition year because there were still high expectations for the team. And the thing that was that I kind of realized after coaching college for all those years and then you know making this move up was it was pretty much the same. Hmm. You know, it was just kids. You know, it was just they were just paid kids, uh, but they still cared about what they did. And if if they thought that all you cared about was how they performed on Sundays, 
They would not play for you. They had to know that you cared about them more than what they could do on the field. No different than college, you know. And if you did that, then they would do anything for you. And they cared about each other. And, you know, you had to, you know, you know, you had to manage it. There were a few egos. I mean, Shannon Sharp was not the same as, like, trying to coach, you know. You know, but I had Terrell Buckley. We had, you know, we had some guys that, you know, had been around. And, and for the most part, everybody was, was just a solid guy who – um, yeah, it was it was it was interesting how similar it was. The only difference is having coached high school, college, and then the NFL was just the fact that yeah, from a knowledge base, you know, you could just throw terms out, and for the most part, they understood. Whereas you know, yesterday I'm, you know, I got my guys at Jesuit High School, and I'm okay. This is what cover two is, and there's mm-hmm. the reason we call it cover two is because there's two guys that are deep, and there's five underneath players. You weren't doing that in the league. Um, you might find yourself doing that in college now. I'm not gonna lie. You know the. You know, the knowledge base is a lot different for a kid coming in from high school. So Yeah, speaking you know, of cover was, two it, speaking yeah. of cover two, I think fans sometimes could use a primer because sometimes you'll see maybe the corner doesn't do a good job of rerouting the receiver on a cover two and it looks like um, you know, everybody blames the safety who's trying to get over. Oh, he got burned, he got beat, and you go, Yeah, well his teammate didn't help him in that situation <laughs> and you know, that's the stuff you see on film, but as a coach, you recognize that immediately. You know, that's the one thing. If anybody's giving me a compliment that I've tried to stay with doing this TV and and radio stuff was, you know, I try to do a good job when I'm on the Pac-12 network of explaining the game to somebody who understands the game and knows the game and maybe played the game, but also and, and not dumbing it down to where they're irritated, but then also to the person who's a novice, like, being able to explain things in a way that also doesn't lose them. And so, uh, yeah, a lot of times, and especially on the defensive side of the ball, that happens all the time. You know, some corners chasing somebody down the field and they get blamed for getting beat when that wasn't the coverage, you know, and trying to explain like, yeah, it wasn't really that, it was this. Um, you know, but that's kind of the life of, uh, of a defensive coach, man. I, I swear, if I could go back in time, I would coach receivers and coach quarterbacks because <laughs> it is, uh, it's just a – you know, it's one of those things where, you know, on defense, you can have 10 guys doing the right thing, and all it takes is that one guy who doesn't do his assignment right. Next thing you know, you know, you're uh, you're you're going home telling your wife, well, we're going to pack up and uh, we got to get a new job because we just got fired. Uh, Nigel, and, you know, that's how it works. Nigel Burton, Pac-12 Network analyst with us, uh, University of Washington football player, coached in the Pac-12 and beyond. Uh, let me ask you about Oregon State. Uh, saw a report, had a media member saying there's so much pressure on DJ Uyunglele. Uh What does Oregon State need from DJ in your mind next season t- to win? You know, I think any pressure that's on him is not is, is gonna is gonna come from everybody outside that building. So I, I guess that's the good part. And obviously, it's gonna come from him because he wants to do well. Uh, I would not completely write off Ben Goldbranson. I'm telling you. Like, the, listen, the guy went 7-1 as a starter at Oregon State last year. He knows the system better than DJ does. He obviously doesn't have the physical tools necessarily, but he throws a good football, and he can win at that level. So they know they have that ace in that hole. I think for DJ, you know, in watching what Clemson does, and he had a quote, that, and, and credit to Dabo Sweeney, and I'm not a huge Dabo Sweeney fan, but, you know, whatever. Um he, he, DJ had a quote where he basically was, it seemed to allude to the fact that he now can play quarterback and that's not what Clemson asked him to do. And he, you know, he can now do some things that are more in his wheelhouse and, and people tried to, of course, and, you know, and that's part of the country, 
take it as a slight towards Clemson. But DJ wasn't being dishonest, man. He really wasn't. Like, what Clemson asked him to do was not play quarterback. They asked him to play glorified running back, quarterback sometimes. Whereas what Jonathan Smith is going to ask DJ to do is make decisions before the snap, drop back, play actual quarterback like he's going to be asked to do if he makes it to the NFL, and deliver the football on time and be accurate. That's playing quarterback. And that's not what they asked him to do at Clemson. You know, when you're talking about RPO games, read zone and, and some of that, those, you know, read, you know uh, read zone play action game and all that kind of stuff, that's not, that's not what they asked him to do. So he's, he's got a pretty big learning curve. I would argue that more is going to be asked of him than was asked of, 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 of whether it was Chase or Ben last year only because they're going to be minus some weapons that they had last year, in particular the receiver spot. And when you looked at Oregon State last year at the receiver spot, they were as loaded as anybody, and I don't care. I'll put, I'll put Oregon State's receivers up against USC's receivers last year. I mean, they were uber-talented. They had basically a four-by-one track team running around out there. I mean, they were fast. They had size. I mean, they were, they were scary good. And with the departure of a few guys, you know, I'm not sure they look exactly the same. So if I'm coaching against Oregon State, I'm going to load the box, stop Damian Martinez, slow down Jam Griffin, you know, and see, you know, the guys were left, you know, Anthony Gould, the Silas Boldens, who, you know, Gould had a great year last year, but, you know, they didn't rely on Silas last year. You know, you've, you've got some guys that are gone. Can they win games for you? And so I just think more is going to be on whoever the quarterback is you know, I think DJ's got a, a really obviously a good shot. They didn't bring him in for no reason. But, again, Beaver fans, I would not write off Ben Goldbranson at all. Nigel, Oregon on the defensive side of the ball. Dan Lanning has come on the show. We've talked about defensive identity and how they didn't really have one last year. But you're a defensive-minded guy. You played defense. You coached defense. How does a team shape a defensive identity? Where does that come from? Oh. You know, what I've learned over the years, it's not about your scheme. It's about trying to get guys day-to-day to follow, to just buy into a mode of being, if that makes sense, right? Like, it doesn't matter whether you're a 4-3, 3-4, 3-5-5. Uh, five, five. You can be, a, you know, a cover two team, cover four team, man press, zero coverage. I mean, I've seen it done so many different ways. But ultimately, the, the great defenses, they have just a way that they approach their business. And it starts with everybody's assignment sound, and you do your job. The end. Like, do your job, and then from there, we're going to be as physical as we can. We're going to swarm the football. And, and I think those things are way more important than, like, schematic stuff. You can find, I don't care, Jolie Dunn, I don't think ever played a zone coverage in his life when he was – you know, a coordinator at, in the SEC. And then you got other guys who like, that's all they've done. You know, I mean, uh, the, you know, you, the, the Tony Dungeons of the world and, you know, you go down the Tampa two stuff, those, they never played man. And so you can be successful in a bunch of different ways, but the approach was always the same, you know, being physical at the point of attack and some things. And I think that the, the challenge for, for, for coach Lanning is, you know, Oregon, that's not really what Oregon, Oregon hasn't been known for their defense since Nick Aliotti left. Right. So, how do you kind of rebuild that sense of swagger on that side of the ball when forever, you know, uh, a lot of their games were track meets. And so, you know, that, that confidence is tough to build. 
and trying to get them to do it day in and day out. And you don't have the same kind of guys you have at Georgia. It's just not the same. Um, and so if you can do that and just get them to kind of, this is how we go about our business, and you get a couple of games where you get some confidence in you and, and things like that, then, then you can you can build off of that. Colorado is a lot of attention. They're going to be on Fox the first two weeks of the season, big noon kickoff. Um, I've kind of wondered about coaches in the Pac-12. Will they circle the Colorado game on the schedule because of all the buzz? Are they tired? Does this stuff chap other coaches? I mean, stuff, I mean, all the attention's been on Colorado. What do you make of that? Do you think Colorado will enter, you know, Pac-12 play with everybody going, Can't, I've never been so excited to play Colorado? I don't think so. I mean, I think I think coaches, you know, you 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 know, everybody's got that one guy who kind of irritates them. <laughs> but but you know, it's you know, you don't if you're into the circle in the calendar kind of guy. I mean, I just think your your time in the in the business is going to be short lived. I think uh, now, I think the biggest issue for Dion is the fact that like if Dion suited up, he'd probably be their third most talented player. Like that's going to be the issue. <laughs> Yeah. I'm serious. Like they, they've got, they are so talent deficient there. I mean, it, it's been, I mean, it's, 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 it's head scratching to the point of like what was happening there, you know, under, under, you know, the, the previous staff. And so uh, there's going to be a ton of rebuilding. I, I hope that Colorado has a ton of patience um, because the hype machine has been going, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, good for them, man. I'm, I'm excited for them that people are excited about Colorado football. That's dope. But when it doesn't show up in the box score, I just hope that people understand, like, you know, hey, you're, you're going to have to be patient. Because, yeah, you can turn around overnight, but not with the kind of guys you're going to want to see on Friday nights <laughs> and Tuesdays. Like, you're not going to – you know, not if you want to do it right. And, and what's funny is what I think people don't give Coach Sanders enough credit for um, is when you really, like, watch some of the videos they have coming out of that program, how much of it is him talking to those young men about life and making good decisions and being good, you know, sons and fathers and what he wants from them when football is done. And so I think he's trying to build it the right way, you know, and obviously everybody's excited because of who he is and things like that. But I think in the grand scheme of things, the way he's trying to do it is the right way. And it's just going to take a while. And I, I just hope they have the patience to, to, to work with it. Yeah, and I, cause I think, too, you know, he, they may have some skill position players, and the spring game kind of highlighted that a little bit, but uh, they don't have the depth on the offensive line, defensive line. They're not there, and I think it'll take them a couple years to get there. Nigel Burton is with us, Pac-12 Network analyst. Um, Washington, let's finish with Washington. That's your school. Kalen DeBoer had a great first season, 11 wins. How hard in, How hard is it to take a step forward? Because everybody's going, okay, what's the next step? How hard is it to take a step forward when your first step was 11 wins? <laughs> well, I mean, I, again, I think you can take a step forward. It may not always show in the box score. You know, I think, you know, you look at, in particular, in the first half of the season, how inconsistent their team was. I mean, how do you beat Oregon? How do you take Michigan State behind the woodshed and then lose to Arizona State on the road the way they did, right? And so – um, what they got towards the second half of the season was consistency and they, they, they the, the level of buy-in. Um, and so I think they can take steps in particular on the defensive side of the ball. And you can take steps when all of a sudden, like when your best players are all coming back, you know, you, defensively you got ZTF is back and, you know, you got, you got some guys. And obviously on offense, you know, you got Penix and you're 
you know, Roma Dunze, and you got you got you know, uh, almost all your running backs, almost all your offensive line, you know, Jackson Kirkland's gone to the league, you know, Papa, he's gone. But for the most part, like, you've got most of your firepower back. And those guys understand how close they were last year. Um, I, I actually think the job is, is, is out there. I think the interesting part for them is not this year. It's what happens next, the year after this. Like, a year from now, what kind of conversation we have? Who's going to be the quarterback? Who are they going to be the receivers? What does the defense look like? You know, can you build off of this momentum? Because that's the tough part. You know, when you look at, um, you know, you made this huge jump. Was, were you able to turn that into recruiting success? Are you able to bring in the kind of guys that you're going to need to keep this thing going? Because I've been there. And that place, you don't get rings at the University of Washington. Like, I, I hear about other programs and, oh, we got a bowl ring. You don't get bull rings at the University of Washington. I don't know if anybody knows that, John. You get one ring, maybe two. You get a ring for a Pac-12 championship, and you get a ring for a national. And if you don't get those, you don't get nothing there because that is a level of expectation when you walk into Husky Stadium and you don the purple and the gold, and that's just how it works. And so bowl games ain't good enough there. And so what's going to be interesting is what happens in year three, four, five, uh, and as long as they're able to hang on to their coordinators like they did, they're able to hang on, you know, and they're able to recruit well and, and all those sorts of things in a way that, you know, I think Kalen has really embraced, you know, the culture there. I mean, his daughter's going to school there playing softball, and they're in the World Series, you know, call it a, you know they've, they've made it far in, in the, the, the softball championships. Uh, then I think everything will be, will be great for them. Nigel Burton, footballcamps.com. You want to see more about the football camp? Uh, Nigel, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show, sharing your expertise. Uh, I think we still have uh, a spot or two left if you want to scholarship your kid for the camp uh, coming up on June 20th. I'm going to put Nigel on hold so that uh, he can get the information for the people who called in. But if you would like to call in and send your kid to the Nigel Burton football camp, 503-417-7575 is the phone number. He's offering a scholarship. Grab it while it lasts. You got the BFT statewide. Leave it here. I mentioned earlier that uh, Oregon has a, advanced with a win in their, I guess they just won a game, won their opening game in the uh, Nashville Regional, beating Xavier. Um, Oregon State is in the Baton Rouge Regional. They'll uh, play their game coming up here in about uh, 35 minutes, first pitch. Uh, going into the weekend. Big weekend for college baseball. It's been a weird week on uh, on uh, sports media nationally. This whole thing with FS1's show Undisputed is really interesting. Shannon Sharp, Skip Bayless. Um, I, I've talked with Shannon Sharp once. Don't know him that well. Covered him when I was covering the NFL. In uh, the 99-2000-2001 era and working in the Bay Area as the uh, NFL columnist, Major League Baseball columnist there. Um, got to see him play, terrific player. Don't know him. Always respected him. I like Shannon Sharp. I like. I mostly like what Shannon Sharp, his takes too, even though I don't agree with him. I like where Shannon Sharp comes from. I think he does a good job speaking as a former athlete, right? Former athlete. Um you know, he's talking about Ja Morant, right? Look, Ja is a really, ja is a really good basketball player. 
Ja did everything he could to lift himself and his family out of this type of environment and to get away from this. And for some reason, he wants to surround himself with these type of people. Why? Bro, you not hard. That's not your life. People that in that life would give anything to be in your life. Great point. For some reason, you're worth 30, you're worth, you got a $200 million contract and you want people in the NBA to think you hood, to think you gangster mm -hmm. because you roll with these type of people. Bro, you putting yourself in harm's way when you don't have to. Nobody looks at you, John, and think, man, that's a thug. He hood. <laughs> he down. He bought that. You not. Mm. Stop pretending. Now, Shannon Sharp, Skip Bayless, it's not undeniable that the show Undisputed has become, uh, you know, it's become a, uh, I don't want to say it's a tentpole. I don't want to say it's a must watch because it isn't. Sometimes I'm confused why people watch these shows at all. It's just people arguing. But it's um, it's one of the more popular shows. And uh, apparently Shannon has had enough of working with Skip Bayless. And, um, you know, this has been a story for the last 48 hours, really, and also a story that has cropped up at different times as Shannon Sharp and Skip Bayless, the co-hosts of the show, have had issues. Now, Dan Clark is a baseball writer who is on Twitter. He's got about 50,000 followers. He tweeted out a tweet saying, Shannon Sharp has outgrown Skip Bayless. He is far superior. He has a wonderfully bright future ahead. Bayless will not find another partner. His career is in a nosedive because he is a piece of bleep. Now, that that was... The tweet. Shannon Sharp liked the tweet. Everybody's making a big deal over the fact that he liked the tweet. But don't we already know kind of what Skip Bayless, Shannon Sharp, how they feel about each other? I can tell you in working with Skip Bayless, I worked with him for a brief period of time as I was that NFL columnist. He was a general columnist at the same paper at the San Jose Mercury News. And... You know, we didn't work that long together. It was like one NFL season. But I sat next to Skip often. I talked to him frequently. I found him to be a much different person in having a one-on-one -on -one conversation than he was on air. I've told the stories before. Like, he's drinking a Tab Cola. He's eating sushi. He's real kind of soft-spoken. He's telling me about his training, his running regimen. Uh, he's giving me career advice. He's telling me go to go go up to Oregon. There's no voice there. You'll become the voice of or of the Northwest. There's no there's just nobody there. There's no voice. It's a vacuum. You know he was in my ear telling me that. Uh, simultaneously, then you turn the cameras on, and you know Skip Bayless turns into a parody of a guy who's doing, I guess, sports media in today's world, and and uh, has been. Uh, has made a lot of money doing it. If you make enough goofy predictions, the well, odds are that eventually you're going to get one right. You're right, you're right. So Charles had predicted that Portland would win game one, right. and now he has quadrupled down Sweet. that Portland will sweep your Los Angeles Lakers. And I say you better gloat while you can, Nostra Chuckus, <laughs> because it ain't going to last much longer. That was in better times. The relationship between Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp has, has cooled considerably in recent years. I think Skip can be really difficult to work be you know to work with. I found that I did not have problems with him, but I was not in direct competition with him for airtime or mic time. I think it could be a uh, unrelenting and frustrating endeavor to try to have to work alongside 
Skip Bayless. And there were other people, I'm not going to speak for them, who worked at the paper who had to deal with him in that setting. And I got to tell you, to a person, they all had a problem with Skip. Every one of them had a problem with Skip. He was difficult. He needed the limelight. He needed all the oxygen in the room. It becomes evident in watching this uh, soap opera play out with Shannon Sharp that Shannon's kind of just had enough of it and has negotiated a buyout from FS1. I think Skip will be fine. He has, uh, uh, he's a wonderful self-promoter. He, they will find someone else for him to argue with or they will have him argue with himself. Uh, I think Shannon's got a career in front of him as well. I think, but I think you know the, the, the dirty little secret is that if both of these guys really wanted this thing to work, I think it could have worked and I think it could have been even better. But I think we're kind of watching a interesting flashpoint or a pivot point in with the shoulder programming we're seeing on ESPN and FS1 and in other places. As you see Pat McAfee sign a big deal with ESPN. You have Dan Patrick, who's in his 60s, who's kind of sailing on, doing his thing in the background. And now you have questions about will Shannon Sharp be able to do this on his own and who do they pair with Skip Bayless. I have a bigger question. I have a bigger question, Stephen, and for the listeners. Why does anybody watch this stuff? I don't really understand the point of it other than maybe it's interesting to see people with dissenting viewpoints argue with each other. But I find some of the other shows, like Dan Patrick's show when it's on TV, even Jim Rome when he was interviewing people, um, the, the McAfee show, I find it far more compelling because I think there's a depth to it that does not exist when you just have Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp arguing over whether Alden Smith was a bigger gain for the Seahawks or a bigger loss for the Cowboys. Bigger gain for the Seahawks or bigger loss for yeah, the Cowboys? Sure. Bigger gain for the Seahawks because we didn't give up nothing. We got it. Oh. It took us a little, took us like six months, but you we got it. You don't even like it. Yeah, I like it. I you like do it, not like it. I like it. him a lot better now. Yeah, he the door. duped you, Mr. <laughs> Seahawk. He had three of his five sacks, as Jenny just said, at Seattle. He was second on your team in sacks, and he was making a couple of million dollars, and one guy was making $21 million. Steven, why does this work? Why do people... People tune into it. Um, I think you're right on with the fact that people like to see these arguments because people like chaos, I feel like, and they're not directly a part of it. They're just watching it from afar. So they feel like they're watching. You know, it's like a car wreck, right? Like it, it's know. reality TV, yeah, it's but reality. it's not reality, but right. it's not reality. It's, it's not fake the, reality, right? Because they are manufacturing all these arguments to make sure they're on the show. I don't get it. I don't like these shows as well, um, just like you don't. But I can kind of see it where also, you know, they are fans of teams, right? You know, Skip loves the Cowboys. Shannon loves the Lakers. So if you're a Cowboy fan, you're a Laker fan, they're always going to back their team, even if it's crazy. And it doesn't matter. So I feel like it just screams to, like, the craziest of sports fans out there that just love to see chaos and love to see arguments. So, you know, it is interesting to see, you know, Shannon leaving because, you know, obviously him and Skip don't like each other. Um, you know, there's been reports out there, you know, Pat McAfee said on his show, like Shannon come to ESPN, Stephen A. Smith said the same thing. If he wants to come to first take, he can come to first take. So I think Shannon's in a good spot right now. And he chose a great time to uh, buy himself out of that contract at Fox sports and uh, get a better, bigger, better contract somewhere else. And I kind of wonder about skip because, you know, skip is older than people think Uh, skips had some work done, you know, and, and I thought skip was, you know, but skips whole thing. You know, he's on Twitter. He's got 3.2 million people following him. He follows nobody. It, it's a it's a shtick, right? He follows nobody because 
the perception is I don't care what anybody else thinks. Uh, only what I say matters. And I think it's exhausting to have to deal with that or work with that for any length of time. Now, again, I didn't have to, uh, I didn't have to deal with Skip. But do you know how old Skip Bayless is? Ooh. Take a stab. Take um, a stab without looking it up. Well, now that you said he's older, I'm going to go on the older side. Um, I would go like 66. He's 71. Oof. He's, I mean, you know, he's kind of done. Shannon Sharp's 54. And, and Shannon, I like Shannon. I think Shannon Sharp could do it, uh, could do that show with Dan Lebetard. I think he could do it with, uh, he could do it with any number of uh, ESPN personalities. But I also kind of just wonder, like, has he had enough? I kind of think that Skip's got, the, you know, six months, a year, year, year and a half left in him. I, I agree with the, the tweet mostly, but I think you also have to look back and you have to kind of appreciate what Skip Bayless has constructed for himself in a world that is, um, I think, really difficult to, uh, you know, to have longevity. It's a business that's tough to have longevity in. He's definitely changed the game, for sure. Like, he was, you know, one of the originators of the argument. But do you think that with Skip and his Shannon, the, the, if they go to a new new co-host or Shannon goes to first take, that that's not going to work as well because of the race factor? That it would be, you know, on first take it would be Stephen A. Smith and Shannon Sharp. Yeah. Does Skip have to get another African-American on that show to argue with, is that a big key to the success of these type of shows? I think it was a key to Shannon and, and Skip, and I think it worked because I think people tuned in when they were, like when it came to issues of race in particular, you know, and, and I think it, it really was a flashpoint when, you know, they were arguing over Tom Brady. I saw them argue over Tom Brady like a year ago, and it, and it, it was an argument that really went sideways. And it, I kind of wondered if it was the beginning of the end at that point because – Skip Bayless does not um, does not question Tom Brady, and yet you had quarterbacks who were black quarterbacks in the league that didn't get the same treatment from Bayless, and I think it chapped Shannon Sharp. And so I do think the show worked best when you had um, two opinionated guys, one guy who's played in the league, one guy who covers the league. That works. You have one guy who is African-American, another guy who's white, that works because you can talk about different elements of race from different perspectives. Um, like it's quite different to hear Shannon Sharp talk about John Morant in the way that he's talking about John Morant saying, you know, look, you're not in the hood. And and Skip Bayless couldn't have that same take. And so I think in a lot of ways Skip needs either somebody who's very different from him um, or or even a woman who's got strong opinions and, and is you know willing to stand up to him. I think that would work for the show, but I kind of think it's 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 run its course to some respect, and and you know I kind of think that's that's how it is. And but you know let's give Skip Bayless some credit. I mean, yeah, you talk about inventing the genre of you know reality television that isn't reality television and just arguing. Um, that's in there, and he's done that. But I actually would like to see maybe. Uh, Shannon try to do his own thing. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't want to see him alongside Stephen A. Smith. I just think the dynamic. I like the dynamic of Stephen A. Smith. Uh, you know, alongside J.J. Redick. I really like J.J. Redick and how the point counterpoint that happens there. You know, and, it, and again, it's quite quite the opposite because Stephen A. Smith has not played in the NBA. J.J. Redick has, and so now you have this really interesting dichotomy uh, in this relationship between somebody who covers the league, somebody who played in the league. I like that. 
because it's a it's a very different viewpoint. And and I love and it's such a lazy argument like for the player to to say you haven't played therefore you don't know. It's such a lazy argument for players to go to that position because you know media members could just go to the position you're too close to it. You can't be objective. You're just protecting coaches and players with your viewpoints. I think it's much better when they're able to step outside of their own experience and just kind of talk about what they see, what they perceive, and it's laced with their own experience. It, is, it doesn't have to become you're the defender. And I, I love that about Shannon because I think Shannon sometimes will criticize players in a way that is jarring to me, and I like that. And uh, I, I, I hope he keeps – I hope he finds a spot somewhere because I – I actually think of the two of them, if they're talking, I'm more interested in what Shannon Sharp's saying than, than Skip Bayless. I'm more interested in what J.J. Reddick's saying than than Stephen A. Smith. 100%. And it's not even the fact that they played and Skip and Stephen A. didn't. I, I just think they come across as much more knowledgeable in a lot of different areas. You know, As a basketball guy like J.J. Reddick, actually watches the games. I don't know if Stephen A. Smith necessarily is watching all these games and can break it down. He's good at these hot takes. But a lot of these guys that come in that are, you know, analysts or experts in their field, some are really good. You know, Tim Legler, JJ Reddick, all he's really yeah. good and that kind of stuff. Like I think Shannon's the same thing. Like when Shannon talks, I want to listen to hear what he has to say. I think he has a great view on points where I think these other guys, you know, Stephen A and uh, Skip Bayless in particular, n- not necessarily. And, and I think so there's a lot of imitators too of Skip and Shannon. And and I think they, you know, both of them maybe, I hope they take a moment to kind of reflect on what they did because I think some of the other shows were definitely influenced by what they were doing. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to talk more about college baseball, college football. Also, I'm going to look to the weekend, game two of the NBA Finals. All of that's still ahead, plus the 5-5, five and five, top of the hour. I was telling my friend Matt Zafino, the uh, chief meteorologist over at KGW, uh, he was listening to the show in hour one when I was talking about bad movies. Anna and I went and saw You Hurt My Feelings. It was the worst movie that I've seen in a while. It was terrible. It was not interesting. It was not funny. It did, the writing was bad. The acting was flat. And, you know, it just didn't work. It didn't work. It And, it, and as a public service to you, I'm going to tell you, do not go see You Hurt My Feelings. Because the movie, You Hurt My Feelings, Hurt My Feelings. Um I would have walked out of You Hurt My Feelings, but I didn't want to leave Anna alone in the theater, and she was sleeping, okay? That's that's how <laughs> that's how bad the movie was. So uh, just throwing that out there. Um, Zafino may be among the celebrity golfers. He's checking his schedule. For the BFT Foundation's annual celebrity golf tournament taking place Thursday, June 29th at the Reserve Golf Course. It's presented by High Caliber Millwrights. Uh, Brandon and the team at High Caliber uh, do a fantastic job and uh, are uh, big friends of the BFT Foundation, and I appreciate their support. I know we all do every year, and uh, Brandon is, uh, they are the presenting sponsor this year, High Caliber Millwrights. So fist bump to the team at High Caliber, and if you're working at High Caliber, feel good about that company you work for. A uh, little bit of news today. I'll get to the Pac-12 baseball and all that other stuff I promised you. But a little bit of news today um, that was interesting. Uh, I saw Fox's uh, Brian Fisher had a, a report where he broke down the percentage of Power 5 conference football games that are on streaming or linear broadcast or cable in the first three weeks of the 2023 season. The ACC 
has 11% of their games streaming in the first three weeks. The Big Ten is at 8%. The Big 12 is at 39%. The Pac-12 is at 3% streaming. And the SEC is at 25% streaming. For all that talk about, oh, the Pac-12, too much streaming, all that stuff, 3%. We're Again, we're talking about the first three weeks. So small sample size, but still. Uh, broadcast cable. Broadcast is ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox. Big Fox. Let's look at the Pac-12. Uh, first of all, the ACC has 22% on broadcast. The Big Ten is 32%. The Big 12 is 22%. The Pac-12 is 23%. The SEC is 15% when you talk about broadcast. Again, broadcast is what we all think about as normal, regular TV. ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox. Finally, um, cable TV. ACC, 66% of their games in the first three weeks on cable. Big 10 at 60%. Big 12 at 39%. Pac-12 at 74% and the SEC at 60%. I think when you look at it, the Pac-12 was low on the streaming numbers. That jumped right out at me. And that they're on par with the others when it comes to linear TV. So I think some of the criticisms we've seen of the Pac-12 conference, some of them are valid, but some of them maybe not so much. A lot being made nationally today about the eight-game schedule that the SEC wants to play in 2024. The SEC voted this week to stay with an eight-game conference schedule. The Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the Big 12 all play nine games of conference play, conference schedule. So, you know, you don't have to be a math major to figure this out. I wrote in depth about this at johnconzano.com, but I just want to tell you this. Like Paul Feinbaum, I played this clip earlier, but I don't think I did it justice. Here's what Feinbaum said about the SEC, and I think Feinbaum's kind of got it right. Like he's the SEC guy. But I think I can go a little further with it. They really don't care what the optics are because <laughs> they are the SEC, uh, and they've won 13 out of the last 17 national championships, including four straight. So, and, and the commission, Commissioner Sankey told me, hey, uh, the optics weren't too bad out uh, in L.A. a couple of months ago when Georgia was eviscerating TCU 65-7. to Yeah, look, uh, Feinbaum is banging the drum for the SEC. It's what he does. But here's what I think the, the, is interesting in all of this. Like, I reached out to Greg Byrne, the Alabama athletic director, and I asked him about, you know, his vote. Alabama voted against going to a nine-game schedule. Byrne told me that part of the reason why he voted against it was that they scheduled their non-conference games all the way through 2035 thinking, hey, we're going to play only eight conference games. And as a result... Um, Alabama would have to unwind some of those deals. And further, Alabama's playing some games beginning in 2023, 2024, 2025, 2026, 2027. They are playing Wisconsin in a home-and-home. Home. They're playing Ohio State in a home-and-home. Home. They're playing Florida State in a home-and-home. Home. It's very un-Alabama-like from a scheduling standpoint. I find it very interesting. Um, as much as I want to see a nine-game conference schedule, because then you get apples-to-apples apples comparisons with the Pac-12, the Big 12, and the Big 10, I actually think the SEC is smarter than the rest. The SEC is staying true to itself and going, 
There's no reason for us to play the ninth conference game. We are dominating this invitational tournament by playing only eight conference games. And, oh, by the way, here comes the expanded playoff. And guess what's going to happen with the expanded playoff, people? The expanded playoff is going to be, sure, the Power Five champions are going to get in, but really where the race in college football is going to be is for those at-large berths. It's going to be the other berths. How many teams can the Big 12, the Pac-12, the Big 10, the ACC, and the SEC get in? Because I know a lot of people are going, you know, can the Pac-12 get two teams in in most years? And I think they will. But I think the SEC wants three and sometimes four teams into the playoff. And I think you're going to see, you know, keep in mind, when you play eight conference games instead of nine, it means 50% of your league has one fewer conference loss than everybody else. Every other conference, just by simple statistics, simple math, every other conference, 50% of the conference is going to have one more loss. That's just how it works when you play an extra game. I think you're going to see nine and three teams fighting over, like, the last spot in the playoff. And I don't think that the selection committee has the guts to look at the SEC and go, well, you guys played one fewer game, so your 9-3 and three is not the same as maybe some other 9-3s. and threes. I don't think they have the guts to do that. I think they're going to do quite the opposite. So I think you're going to see just a hint of an advantage, again, with a 12-team playoff, for the at-large berth teams that are, you know, nine and three and ten and two, who are sitting there in the SEC, I think they're going to get, they're going to look better. I think the conference, the SEC, everyone's going to still say the SEC is a better conference, you know, and and you know, don't hold it against them that they only played eight games. And I think, you know, the proof is in the last nine college football playoff tournaments. The selection committee has not penalized the SEC for playing that you know, shorter conference schedule. And I think it's smart for the SEC. Like, as much as the rest of us want to see more games and more competitive games and, hey, that's not fair, if I'm the SEC, I'm doing it the way the SEC's always done it until I start getting penalized for it. So I think the only way that the SEC reconsiders this is if you see the selection committee start to go, hey, your 9-3 and three is not as good as a 9-3 and three in the Big Ten because they're playing more crossover games. Until they do that, the SEC, where it just means more, should just keep scheduling eight conference games a year because it's just smarter. Leave it here. The 5 at 5 is coming up. I've been ripping on that Julia Louis-Dreyfus movie. just was bad. Save your money. <laughs> Stay home. Don't go see that movie. I'm warning you. You will not, you will not enjoy that movie. Not a great film. I know a good movie when I see it. I'll tell you when to go spend your money. Save your money. Apparently, Matt Safino says he loved Cocaine Bear. <laughs> have you seen Cocaine Bear? I have not. I might have to go see that just to get the taste of You Hurt My Feelings out of my movie mouth. I saw that. I saw a lot yeah. of people were uh, complaining about Cocaine Bear because they were making it out like cocaine would be fun, like the bear had mm. so much fun, and that's uh-huh. not the right thing to do. But you know, I've actually heard it's a funny movie. 
I think that you have to. Um, I think you have to accept that it's a wild premise. I hate when people do that. Like, eh, you know, it's a bad message. What do you think? Bears are going to go see it, and suddenly the bears are going to be lining up doing drugs? No. It'd be impressive if that happened, though. Bunch of bears go to the city trying to score some smack after seeing Cocaine Bear. <laughs> see the bears all lined up to go see the movie? <laughs> Something here for us. I just, I think it's kind of, uh, I think you have to kind of expect that people, you know, the people who are freaking out about Cocaine Bear sending bad, me- a bad, me- a dangerous message are the same kind of people that are banning books everywhere. I'm just saying. Don't, let's, let's. Let's allow each other. Let's just breathe a little bit. Just freak, okay? out, freak out about nothing. Yeah, and I I told Dashiell covers Oregon State the other day. Nick Dashiell, his kids getting married in like a week. He's he's uh, he's wrestling with that as a dad. But I was talking to him. I think it was yesterday, day before. I can't even remember. And he was telling me that I need to go see. Uh, there's an FDR documentary he's been watching. And I was like, I don't have time to go watch an FDR documentary. He just texted me, listening to the show. He says, if you have time to watch that zero of a movie, you have time for the documentary. Uh, I digress. Now, you're going to do the five at five because there was a fiasco at our house today. Big fiasco at our house today. Um, the uh, kids were off school. And the nine-year-old, Anna took the nine-year-old for the first time to get her hair done. I'm using air quotes there as I say that. Get her hair done. Because I know nothing about this world of going to get your hair done. I don't know what it costs. I don't know what you do. I don't know what it's talked about. It's been ages since I got my hair done. So, But I think it's a big deal for like the 9-year-old to go with mom. Going to go to the hair salon. They're going to get their hair done. Um, it didn't fly so well with the 7-year-old. Who felt left out. She got stuck with dad at home not getting her hair done. So Anna, Anna, against her better judgment, felt bad afterwards and then told the seven-year-old, okay, let's go get your hair done, and now it's interfering with the five at five. Is that bad parenting? Is she setting a bad message that, hey, not everybody not everybody needs to be the same? How do you handle that in your household? Do you, is, it's a, is it a fair world or not? Well, the problem is, is I understand from Anna's point of view because that happens to me all the time. With two kids, it's like you give one to something that the other one complains about, it, and it's like, well, I don't know what to do here. Just have it as well. Like you just give in. So yeah. I understand, and it's bad. That is bad parenting to do that because you want to set boundaries, but at the same time, it's just easier sometimes to just you know give it to the kids, let them do what they want. Yeah, it's dangerous. I got into this uh, not too long ago with the same two kids. I um, I uh, rewarded the seven-year-old. They were helping me in the yard, okay? And I said, I will, uh, basically, I was entering the four-way, four-way, you know, the foray of uh, chores and allowance with the seven-year-old and the nine-year-old. And I said, you know, I will uh, buy you, the seven-year-old, this thing, but I need you to put in, like, a weekend of work with me. And it was like $12 was the total value of this thing she wanted on Amazon. I thought that was a very fair wage for working like 14 hours. <laughs> you know? So I cut that deal with the seven-year-old. The The nine-year-old like overheard it and said, eh, I'll do that too, but I'll pick something else out. Okay, that's fine. Well, 
they uh, the nine year old didn't pick something out that was the same price. It was half the price, and now she keeps telling me I owe her six dollars. And I'm like, that's not the deal we cut. The deal was I would buy you this item. It wasn't, you know, and she keeps saying, you, where's my $6? She's like that kid on the bike chasing John Cusack around in the movie going, where's my $6? And I, I, I keep trying to tell her, like, that's not the deal we made. I'm, But, I, Stephen, I'm at the point where I'm just ready to hand her $6 and be done with it. Uh, it's, it again, it's easier sometimes just to do that, and it's bad to do that. Take but, the loss. But, yeah, just take the L. Sometimes you got to. All right, we're going to do the 5 at 5. That's why Anna's not doing the 5 at 5. Basically bad parenting on our part. All right, here we go. The 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. Here we go. Steven's number one story. What do you got? All right, John. This comes out of your neck of the woods here. Uh, freak some Blazer fans out today, NBA fans as well. News came out that Blazers star Damian Lillard selling his house in West Lynn, listing his house for $7 million, of course, NBA fans went wild with this news, not knowing that Dame is building the new house in the same area. But fans, of course, were now expecting trades. They're saying all is over. Blazer fans losing their minds. It's okay. Dame is still going to be living in the Portland area, but he is selling his house. $7 million on the market, John. Yeah, I saw that, and it initially confused me because he's built, you know, what he did is he came in and he bought five acres in Westland. He's living on a house on the property that was there before he started construction. But then he has built a basketball compound on the same property and a second home. So all he is doing here, folks, is selling, I believe, the home that is adjacent to the home that he'll live in. So uh, it's a much ado about nothing situation. It's a little confusing. I thought he was going to keep them both because I think you could put mom in that home and be like, hey, arm's length. But uh, nothing to see there. Uh, the compound that he's built looks a lot like the Blazers' practice facility. It is big. It is bad. It is, um, it is uh, you know, he's here to stay. And I, think, I don't think it means as much in today's world when you got an athlete raising kids in a community, in a family, and then going, hey, um, you know, I'm going to go play my basketball somewhere else. I get, given Lillard's age... I think if he's leaving the area, he's only leaving to go play basketball. I think his family stays here, and I think he's put too much money, too much time and effort into that basketball palace that he has built in West Lynn to walk away from it. It's, it, it's just an example of everything I hate about the NBA offseason. And it's like, this is what we look for and this kind of stuff, because it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You know, if he wants to live in Portland, he can live in Portland. If he doesn't want to, he doesn't have to. Like, But he can play for the Trailblazers and live somewhere else. It really doesn't matter, but... Uh, that was some news that scared some people today. Number two story, as you see it. Number two, Monty Williams. He was fired by the Suns after they blew a 2-0 lead in the playoffs uh, last season to Dallas. They lost game seven by 33. Then this year, tied 2-2 with Denver, lost at home, lose the series, uh, lose game six by 25. He goes on to sign with the Pistons. The Suns, they signed a new coach today after getting rid of Monty Williams. Five-year deal with Frank Vogel to be their new head coach, Vogel. He was last seen with the Lakers where he was fired after the 21-22 season. But he did win that NBA title with the Lakers back in the bubble in 2020 down uh, in Orlando. This will be Vogel's fourth career head coaching job. A lot of jobs for Frank Vogel as he had he's had the NBA's top-rated defense three times in his career, twice with Indiana and once with the Lakers. Vogel now takes on the Suns in 
Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, where they have title aspirations. Who's got the better resume? Vogel with a championship in 2020 or Monty Williams? Uh, you know, who do you think has the better resume? Like, if you're just looking at these two guys. I think resume-wise, it would have to be Vogel. Uh, he's done it for a little bit longer than Monty Williams, and he does have that title as well. Monty Williams. Monty was coach of the year, though. He was. Vogel but, never was coach of the year. But he has bowed out twice in the last two playoffs and bowed out terribly. Uh, blowout losses at home to Dallas and to Denver. I think that does sting a little bit. Um, he can obviously win the big game. They got to the NBA Finals. They were up 2-0 in that series as well against the Bucks. Blew that one. But I think when you get blown out at home in you know series-clinching games, that does that sends a little bit of a red flag for me. Um, so I don't like that about Monty Williams, where I think Frank Vogel hasn't really had that kind of thing yet. So uh, I think Vogel is a little better resume, but you could still say Williams is the better coach. Moving on, number three. Stephen, your number three story is? Number three, the Big 12 commissioner, Brett Yormark. He said today that the conference has a plan when it comes to expansion. Now, a source who was with the, who was there and participated at the Big 12 meetings, meetings he told ESPN, there was no votes on membership, but there was plenty of discussions about scenarios of what the Big 12 could possibly do. Yormark said, quote, we think it's undervalued and there's a chance for us to double down as the number one basketball conference in America. But football's a driver. We all know that. And quote, but a source did also tell ESPN that Utah or UConn, the University of Connecticut and Gonzaga were certainly talked about numerous times in the meeting about expansion. That expansion thing is interesting to me. And I think, you know. I think it's. I think there's a lot of bluster out there, and I, I. Look, we've talked about this at length. I don't want to go too much into this because I'm so sick of like, you know, is Colorado leaving? Is Oregon and Washington going to the Big Ten? I don't think anybody in the Pac-12 is leaving. I actually don't think Colorado is seriously considering leaving the Pac-12. I think they're just placating the faction of people, including Coach Prime at Colorado, who are interested in recruiting the state of Texas. Um, and I don't think Gonzaga is going to leave the WCC again. It comes back to money. Big money makes expansion. These expansion moves are titanic moves. So you don't think if UConn and Gonzaga were to leave the Big East and WCC and go to the Big 12, making them the number one basketball conference in America, that that's any type of splash for the Big 12 because it's not football? It is for the Big 12, but if, if I'm Gonzaga and UConn, I don't need to do that. I could, UConn can win a national title right where they are. Gonzaga can get to the Final Four right where they are. They don't have to share the money. They don't have to compete with Baylor and Kansas and Texas Tech and Houston to try to get an NCAA tournament booth berth. I think, I think you know. Yes, if I'm the Big Twelve, you know, do I want to date Ariana Grande? If I'm the Big Twelve, sure, <laughs> you know. But she's gonna go. Why, why do I need that? You know. Yeah, it seems to me your market. You know, because when, when the first when it all happened with USC UCLA. Your mark came out basically and said, you know, we're going to make big moves. We're going to be big time players. We're open for business. We're open for business. And now nothing is happening. Happening. I feel like he's got to do something at this point. And if it's Gonzaga and UConn, you could argue that they're two of the top 15, 10, 15 programs in all of the nation of basketball. So at least that's something. And then he's not necessarily lying on his words. But it seems like maybe he tried. Nothing, nothing happened. And now he's kind of going to be stuck with trying to get some basketball schools rather than football. What excites me most about joining the Big 12 is the transformative moment in front of all of us today. We have an opportunity to grow and build the Big 12 brand and business, be aspirational, define our point of difference, 
all while never losing our commitment to always compete and develop our student-athletes at the highest levels. Moments like these do not happen often, and we must seize them and make the most of them. It will require incredible work and collaboration. One thing is for sure, there is no doubt the Big 12 is open for business. That was July of last summer. What, He's bi almost, what business have you know, they been open to? Yeah, it, coming up on a year, what have they done? They've, it's, a, it's been a lot of bluster. They're going to rebrand. Okay, cool. It's just two opposite approaches. The Pac-12 has said yeah. nothing. The Big 12 has said everything, and they both have done nothing. Yeah. <laughs> really? Well, the Big 12 got their media rights deal done. I'll give them that. And, and look, here's the other thing. I think the Big 12 was really – it was reeling. In the wake of Texas and Oklahoma leaving for the SEC, the, it, that was a major blow to their brand and to their business. And what Yormark has given them is he's given them some bite. And so I think from that standpoint – you know, it's good, but, you know, what is he looking for with expansion? He came on the podcast with Wilner and I. I said, what are you looking for with, with expansion? So when I think of expansion, I think about it in, in, a, in a couple of ways. Performance, cultural fit. Um, I, I also look at time zone and geography. Um, and it, so, you know, we, we go through this modeling, if you will. Um, uh, you know, is it the right fit for us? And, um, you know, I can, I continue to, to think about expansion for all the right reasons and what's going to be additive to our conference. Look, he, you know, and again, I think basketball is undervalued and I think he sees opportunity in basketball, but if I'm Gonzaga, I'm in the WCC, I get plenty of money. I get exposure on ESPN. In a bad year, I'm a three seed. In a good year, I'm a one seed in the NCAA tournament. I don't have to play Kansas, Baylor, and Houston. I'm not going to the Big 12 if I'm Gonzaga. I, I want people to – I want maybe I'll poke around, I'll sniff around, but I'm not going. Number four, what do you got? Number four, we got the NCAA uh, baseball tournament underway today. The battle to Omaha, road to Omaha, I guess, would be the better term for it. Uh, the Ducks, they played Xavier today. This is how the game ended. Uh, calls from ESPN. And he comes with power. Ground ball to short. This could be it. To second for one and the relay to first, a double play. And the Ducks have come from behind and won it by a final score of 5-4. to four. Ducks get the win over Xavier, 5-4. to four. They now await the winner of Vanderbilt and Eastern Illinois, while the Beavs, they are just about to have their first pitch taken on Sam Houston State in the Baton Rouge Regional. The winner of that game takes on LSU, who defeated Tulane earlier today. But, John, the college baseball tournament, just a really fun time. Anytime you put a tournament or a bracket together, I'm in on that. I'm, I'm down to watch that. So this is always a fun time of year for uh, college baseball. Yeah, I think, look, Mark Wazikowski's team, uh, tough place to play. They'll have a, uh, you know, both Oregon and Oregon State having to go on the road in these uh, in these regional tournaments, hoping they can both get out. Like, I'd love to see them in the Super Regionals. Love to see somebody get to Omaha again. I mean, baseball, any given day. We've seen teams like uh, Ole Miss, last team in, Mississippi State, last team into the bracket, 
went walking off with the trophy at the end. Like, it's just who's playing great baseball. And it's so big in the in the first round of the regionals to win that first game and not come out of the loser's bracket because it is double elimination. Like, it's just so hard to get out of the bracket when you lose that first game. So for the Ducks to come back, get the win, that's big. And now Oregon State looking to get that win over Sam Houston. Finally, the fifth thing is Steven sees it. What's number five? Numerous reports coming out here, John. Russell Wilson. He was all, he was almost dealt to the Eagles and the Commanders, but Wilson had a no-trade clause, and he turned down both of those places. The Seahawks reportedly had deals in place with both of those teams. Then Wilson declined to go to Philadelphia and to Washington before accepting that trade to Denver, where Seattle got three players and five draft picks. Now, Wilson apparently turned down the Eagles trade before the Combine in 2022. So the Eagles were interested in Russell Wilson, not sold on Jalen Hurts, had the trade ready for the combine right after Wilson turned it down. Eagles GM, Howie Roseman gave a public commitment at the combine to Jalen hurts. who then led the Eagles to the super bowl, <laughs> then gave hurts a five year, $255 million deal this off season. I noticed Russell Wilson's been really quiet this off season. There's not a bunch of videos, not a bunch of hype. You know, I haven't, and maybe I'm missing him. Have you seen him on social media, Instagram? He, he was you at know? the uh, Western Conference Finals in the front row against the Lakers on uh, Denver, and no one really cheered him. I think they showed him on the big screen. <laughs> they all kind of like, eh, whatever. But, yeah, you're not hearing a lot out of Russell Wilson. The thing about this story, John, is like what I love. I would love to see a book of just, like, all these random trades that almost happened or were going to happen. They they fascinate me all the time. Like, there's this yes. fa- there's a famous one of the um, with the Warriors – and Steph Curry was going to be drafted by the Suns and be traded. And then at the very end, the Warriors backed out on draft night and said, no, we're going to keep Steph Curry. And the Suns were convinced they were going to get Steph and he was going to be, you know, the savior of the Suns franchise. There's the other one with Steph Curry again. It was the Bucks can choose Monte Ellis or Stephen Curry. Bucks choose Monte Ellis. Look what the Warriors did. Look what the Bucks did. Like, I would love to know all these kind of stuff. So I love when, you know, GMs and the reports come out like this. Love that. Love seeing that. I think that would be a great book. You should totally do it if you could get the GMs to talk That's about it. That's the thing. It. I need yeah. to. I need to get all the GMs to talk to me about it. I don't know. Well, if do I that. think they they like talking in hindsight, but they they often they often like talking about things that make them look better. Like you know, can't find anybody who said they wanted to draft Greg Oden. You know. I mean, can't, I've I've heard with the Blazers that they were super close to getting Hakeem Olajuwon. I've heard that. So, yeah, but you can't find anybody to talk about the bad deals. (laughs) Right. You know, we accidentally did this. We traded Jermaine O'Neal for Dale Davis. Well, this was was a bad one for the Broncos and, you know, the trade for uh, Russell Wilson. So far. But do do you think think Russell can save this? Oh, 100%. He's got some time. He's got some time here. I can't wait to be betting on the Broncos this year. I think that they're a very underrated team, especially Sean Payton coming in. I don't think Sean Payton takes that job. Unless he thinks Russ can still play. That is the five at five. We have so much more ahead. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. I don't know what you're doing this weekend, but uh, Gresham Ford has their 20th anniversary celebration going on tomorrow out at the dealership. Uh, You hear me talk about Bess and Preston, uh, Bess Wills and her son Preston all the time. Stephen, what are you doing this weekend? Well, I got a busy Saturday. Um, my son has a soccer tournament with two games, Ooh. and then it's uh, my wife's sister's birthday today, like so we're going to celebrate hey, her birthday happy tomorrow. birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah, shout out to Kiri. Good stuff. Um, people will hear me talking about Bess, and Bess has popped on the show over the years. And uh, when Bess took over Gresham Ford, by the way, Gresham Ford had the lowest customer service scores in the nation. Okay? 
she's not going to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you this. Now they are consistently at the top of the national rankings. Um, you know, it's different. Um, and yesterday on the show we had Sally Jenkins, the author, talking about like how you can learn some things about sports that you can apply to your regular life. We talk about that on the show all the time. I thought it would be really cool to bring Bess on for a moment. I have over the years. Usually when she comes on, she's raising money for charity. I remember during the pandemic, Bess and Preston used their advertising that was normally dedicated towards selling Ford vehicles. They instead used the advertising to raise donations for medical supplies for first responders. I, you know, I was doing those spots. And they turned the dealership into a, a donation depot. And uh, Bess also got an award. Let's be real. Ford Motor Company recognized Gresham Ford as one of only six dealers worldwide that uh, was working to help improve lives in the community. The BFT Foundation, Food Bank, schools, churches, you know, you get it. You've heard the commercials over the years. Bess Wills and her son Preston joining us uh, today. You guys ready for the celebration? What's going on? We're always ready, John Cazano. <laughs> we were born ready. <laughs> hey, I saw, I was with my kids today, and we were in a parking lot. We saw one of those new Ford Broncos, and I said to the kids, it had no doors on it. And I was like, we need one of those. And I thought, I should not tell Bess that. Because next thing I know, I'm going to end up at the dealership on Saturday while you're doing the anniversary. I'll be test driving a car. <laughs> well, we're really excited. In all fairness, late on a Sunday, we're having a great big party for all of our employees, okay? So, you know, we, we're we really excited about that because we've gotten tons of prizes together. You know, some of the things that, we're you know, the employees can choose from is that one of them gets, is going to get to voice the commercial for us, you know? Nice. So, we're excited to be giving away a whole bunch of prizes to our employees because, quite frankly, that's what this celebration is about, is honoring them for 20 years of their serving our customers, you know. And we, you know, we're really proud of, you know, what they do each and every day on behalf of our customers. Preston, uh, you're working with mom out there, and you're like the next generation. What has that been like for you to grow up on that on that dealership lot? You know, it's just been amazing with uh, the team that we've had uh, throughout the years, uh, the camaraderie, and, uh, you know, uh, like you were saying, uh, how sports relates to, to business and, and vice versa, you know, it, just like in sports, you know, it's a, it's a game of inches, you know, and, and our employees, uh, they grind it out for every inch uh, to, to help uh, the customers day by day. Bess, uh, you know, look, uh, you do community things. You're never going to take a victory lap, but I'm going to make you take one here. Like, pandemic hits, you suddenly go, okay, we're not going to be selling cars right now. We're going to be, instead, we, first responders need equipment. You turn the dealership into a depot. What? Why? What makes you do that? You Because not all businesses do that. Well, because... We, you know, I think that, you know, I just grew up always with the motto is do unto others, you know, and when we had the ability to do some of those things, um, sometimes my employees asked me the same thing because one of the things that we put on the radio was, if you need something, please give us a call. And, you know, like because a lot of seniors were, you know, stuck and nobody was taking care of them, you know, their social workers weren't, you know, able to get out and so forth. So 
Um, and, you know, the good news is I, you know, I'm blessed with my health and so forth. And so I was going to the grocery store and getting groceries and we were getting these calls from people. I need this and I need that. And, you know, a couple of my employees go, well, you know, Beth, you're a senior citizen too. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And so, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, that was the best part about it is being able to do something for, you know, to others because it always comes back to you tenfold. You've had three weddings on the on the at the dealership that and these are employees, right? Who go, hey, um, they yeah. feel so good. They feel so good about working there. They want to get married there. Yeah, well, it's a great venue, you know. And we've had another three at our house, you know, too. So we had one in the dead of winter was snowing outside, and um, and it was. I got to be honest with you, it was in COVID, and so we were very nervous about you know all the regulations and all the stuff mm-hmm. and everything. So. I go, okay, well, we can gather outdoors. It was very, very cold, and we did a lot of the reception in our garage, you know, so that we could safely distance and so all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't know. You just, um, when your employee, you know, looks at you and says, yeah, well, we really want to do this, but we don't have a budget and and everything. And I go, oh, my goodness, don't let a budget stop you. You know what I'm saying? Like, we can make this work. and. We've had some, we had one of the weddings the day after Halloween, and so all the pumpkins are on sale that day, and so we did all the decorations with pumpkins, and one of our techs out in the quick lane, oh my gosh, John, he carved these pumpkins, like with their initials on them and with hearts on them, and it was, you know, it was things that Pinterest only dreams of. (laughs) Bess Wills and her son Preston joining us, 20th anniversary celebration happening tomorrow, Saturday, at Gresham Ford, uh, if you want to join in that celebration. I always feel good about you guys, and I wanted to pull you on air. Sorry for doing that to you, but I, I, I just wanted to give you guys a victory lap because 20 years is nothing uh, – that's not too shabby. Uh, that's a big deal to be in business that long and doing it the right way. And I know you guys – we've talked about this before, but, you know, when I do your commercials, I talk about, like, how different it is and you don't have that guy working at Gresham Ford. And by that guy, I mean, you know, you don't get chased around the lot by somebody who's trying to pressure you into a deal. When you hire, how do you hire the right people? Give me your hiring secrets because you guys do it well. Well, you know, some of our best employees have come from people that were a little bruised and banged up themselves. You know, one of our best salesmen uh, came and he, you know, he said, you know, I need a second chance. You know, I need um, that. um, And, you know, sometimes you look the other way from people. Mm -hmm. But, um, and, you know, one of our sales managers today, he tells you, he'll tell you the story is that we were his, um, you know, he's been clean and sober since he came to work for us. You know what I'm saying? And it's, uh, you know, sometimes, I mean, I think some of our best hires have been people that needed a little bit of grace. And sometimes if with a little love, you know, that goes a long ways. And so it's, it's, you know, um, you, you know, you have to look at all the, you know, the whole person and, and, you know, nurture the whole person, you know. And so it's been, it's worked for us in all fairness, John. Give me, 
Give me an idea, guys. For people who come to the dealership tomorrow as part of the celebration, what can they expect? Well, tomorrow is just, you know, some cookies on the showroom and, you know, that kind of thing. The real celebration is Sunday for our employees, and that's going to be off-site, and we're going to even close a little early for them, quite frankly. so I like it. So if you're looking for a car, get out early this weekend. Yeah. Yeah, get out early this weekend, and, and I'm sure that they will give you their, you know, they're going to be excited to get out early, so they'll be giving everybody the best deal in the on the early appointment on Sunday, if you will. There you go. Like it. All right, Bess, Preston, congratulations. 20 years. Appreciate your guys, the support of the community in particular, the BFT Foundation. I think I speak for a lot of organizations that are just grateful that, you know, they, they, they cross paths with you guys. Well, that's been the best part about 20 years. You know, we sold a lot of cars and we've, you know, repaired and replaced a lot of tires and so forth. But, you know, the stuff that we've done additionally has come back to us, you know, tenfold again. I mean, to work with the kids at your camps, to be able to get some food for Snowcap, to help my father's house take care of some homeless families and keep them together, you know, that's, that's the reason they get up in the morning. Best Preston, congrats. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And take John, care. John, just real quick, and you know I'd have to do this. Fight on. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank Take you. Care. Yeah, yeah. You Thank a little you. USC at the end there. You know what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you yeah. guys. But Thanks. I'm not. You know, I'm half green and half crimson yeah. gold. You know yeah, yeah. You're so playing it down I, the middle. So that's smart business. <laughs> I go into it. Yeah. Okay. Thank okay. you guys. <laughs> All right. Best and Preston. I missed what Preston said. Fight on, at the end there. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Look, uh, they've been strong supporters i dragged him on the show i texted Bess and i said come on you got to come on the show but i talk all the time about the principles that we see from great sports teams um translating to the real world they translate to your family they translate to small businesses they translate to um, a lot of different places like you know i i think about winning teams all the time in context of my own family and, you know, decisions we make and how we parent and all this stuff. But it that's important. Like, and Bess is running a dealership in that way. And you can hear it. Like, you can hear when she talks about the way she treats employees or maybe buys into an employee that needs a break or shows somebody grace or just does right by community organizations. I think it, you know, it comes back tenfold uh, to Bess and Preston out at uh, Gresham Ford. So I, I thank them for coming on. We'll have some parting thoughts for the weekend coming up. I want you to leave it here. You know what I find interesting? These uh, betting scandals we've had in uh, recent weeks, or I guess, or months, involving NFL players, Major League Baseball, had uh, uh, some minor league professional players who were banned from baseball for wagering on college football games. You got the Alabama baseball coach betting scandal. Steven... Uh, is it just me, but I feel like this kind of the news cycle on all that stuff moved really fast. Like Alabama just kind of dismissed the coach and then pivoted, and then there they were in the SEC tournament playing baseball, playing well, and the story was no longer about gambling. And 
the NFL stuff, do you think we've become more, I guess, desensitized? Or maybe we expected there would be some problems with wagering in sports that to the point where it doesn't become that big a deal? Um, I think a little bit, but I also think that's just kind of the world we live in. That, you know, once something happens after a little bit, it just goes away and we kind of forget about it. So I don't think it necessarily is for a lot of things or just for the gambling specifically. I think it's for a lot of things, especially in sports. Um, you know, you know, the whole John Morant thing, like that kind of went away after the yes. first one. And then it happened again, so now we're talking about it again. But it went away after the first time. So I don't think it's necessarily gambling, but I do think that it's just it's sports in general. And we look at these athletes and these coaches and say, well, you know, we kind of expect them to be bad and do bad things. And this is just what happens. So we move on to the next the next bad thing that happens. We don't necessarily highlight the good stuff. I want to talk about that John Morant thing a little bit because I think it's really interesting that I've never seen Adam Silver do this, you know. And for people who don't know, Adam Silver came on during the NBA Finals Game 1, Denver running away with Game 1, and In terms of the timing, um, we've uncovered a fair amount um, of additional information, I think, since I was still asked about the situation. I would say we probably could have brought it to a head now, but... We made the decision, and I, and I believe the Players Association agrees with us, that it would be unfair to these players and these teams um, in the middle of the series to announce the results of that investigation. And it seemed better to park um, that at the moment, at least any public announcement. And my sense now is that shortly after the conclusion of the finals, we, we will announce the outcome of that investigation. This reminds me of like the Looney Tunes cartoons when they were playing baseball and like Bugs Bunny at home plate would wind up and kind of corkscrew himself into like uh, eight different rotations before swinging the bat. It's like Adam Silver is ready to swing the bat and levy a punishment on John Morant that has not been seen before in NBA history. Knock, like, knock him out of the park. Him. Yeah, he's suspended him for eight games in March. And now he's preparing to announce whatever penalty is coming his way. Don't want to be a distraction, but, oh, man, is this going to be bad. Um, talk about it now. I'm leaving the room. He said today that, you know, a reporter asked Adam Silver today, Job was not charged with a crime for displaying a gun on social media. And Adam Silver told the reporter that will not prevent the NBA from handing down discipline. Waving around a gun, displaying them in a certain context, it's not consistent with gun safety. It's not what the NBA wants to be about. But this is really interesting at where he says um, it's it's the investigation is done, but out of respect for this NBA finals. So is John Morant the only person rooting for like a seven-game series? Or does he, does he want this thing over? What are you expecting? Because Brian Windhorst says expect the worst, and I trust Brian Windhorst, ESPN senior writer. I mean, the way Adam Silver says this, it makes me think it's at least at least twenty games, at least a fourth of the season. Like that, I mean, that I feel like that wouldn't be too crazy. Where everyone would be like, you need more, but you need, I, you know, I think at the maximum would be like half a season, but that seems excessive yeah. to me. I feel like it's got to be at least twenty games, a fourth of the season, to make it really stand of, you know. Make it out so Adam Silver wouldn't just announce it right now. Because if it was two games, I think Adam Silver could announce it, and I think we would just be like, "Oh, well, up in arms," and then we'd forget about it because the finals. But if it's twenty games, that's a historic suspension, and we would actually talk about that uh, besides the NBA finals. I think it could be. I think it could be more than twenty because the way that Silver did this 
tells me that he's expecting there to be huge reaction, huge backlash. Uh, and I do think he's saying it would be a distraction to the players. I actually think Adam Silver is concerned that whatever penalty he would levy on John Morant might cause players in the existing series to go, wait a minute, you can't do this. He was not charged with a crime. I think it could be more than 20 games. And and it was just the way that he was saying it, because I, I was watching the video of Silver as he's doing this. He didn't. He's, he looks like a guy who knows this is going to be a huge issue. So at what point? When does it happen? Day after the final game? Multiple games after? I You know, I just think, I think, you know, currently he's suspended indefinitely. But this is the second time he's brandished a weapon on social media. You have a whole bunch of people, like, you know, saying, uh, you know, that he needs to go to another organization. I saw Kendrick Perkins on first take saying that, you know, ja, it might be best for Ja to get out of Memphis. What's the trade value for Ja Morant right now? Does he does he still have trade value until Adam Silver levies the punishment? I don't know if he does because, you know, are we talking about a guy who's going to be suspended 41 games? Is he going to suspend him half the season? I, is he going to do it more? I don't know. I think trade value-wise, he obviously has trade value because he's good, but it's not a lot. And if you're Memphis, there's no way you trade him at this point. I mean, you talked about pennies on the dollar. We talked about right. this yesterday with Dame. Like, when do you if you're looking to trade Dame, when do you do it? Not before the draft. You can't do it now if you're trying, looking to trade John Morant. You're going to have to wait until he comes back after the suspension and shows that he can you know, at least not flash guns on Instagram. Like I think that's what you have to prove to get that back up. I mean, the guy is so talented is the thing, and we haven't seen this really happen. You know, with the social media world, it's so interesting that you know the Gilbert Arenas thing happened behind closed doors in the locker room. This is out in the public. Everyone's seen it. This is the first we're seeing it. It's probably not going to be the last. But, man, the guy is so good. It'll be interesting to see what what Memphis does with them because that guy can ball. That guy is a baller. Stephen A. Smith said that he doesn't – he said that there are people in the NBA who fear that John Morant will not be alive in five years, that this is his own well-being, that it's people in his circle. Um, you know, for Blazer fans, the only – Close approximation of this, I think, happened with the Hoop family and Zach Randolph during Randolph's time in Portland. I know that the gang enforcement team with the Portland Police Bureau was awfully interested in what was happening with the people around Zebo, to the point where, do you remember that you know he did that, you know, Cribs episode, and they showed him at his house out 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 on Stafford. He's living on five acres, and they were riding ATVs and shooting off guns. But uh, gang enforcement was watching the was watching that even that episode of uh, Cribs, and they saw gang signs on the pool table at Zebo's house, and it was uh, it caught their attention. And it wasn't Zach Randolph; it was the people around him that he had brought from home and from his high school and from his hometown and they were wearing the diamond and crust hoops family uh necklaces and there were a lot of people with the blazers organization that were worried about zach randolph at the point at that time now you have um uh you know adrian wojnarowski saying 17 games is the number that he is targeting uh he got eight i don't know i don't know if you it feels like it needs to be significant enough to get Morant's attention, but not so significant 
that it falls back on the NBA. But does, it, think, does yeah. it set a bad precedent if they suspend him for half the season and he didn't break a law? I'm, I'm wrestling with if you can suspend him for not breaking a law, then I, I don't know that that the length of it matters. But I'm trying to figure out, like, if you're John Morant, you know, 17 games is 21% of the season. So is that enough? Now, Wojnarowski, who I trust, and everybody, you know, we all know he's plugged in, he's connected. He's not, I don't think he's making this number up. I think he's getting it for someone else. But he is speculating. He said the number to look at is 17 games. Others are going, could it be a full season? Um, Stephen A. Smith says not a full, I don't think he should be a full season. I, I think a full season's too long. Because I think it's not just a season if it's John Morant. You're taking him away from the thing that gives him the structure that he probably needs. So I think you need to. it needs to be long enough that it is a punitive suspension, that it gets his attention, it costs him a significant amount of money, he's got this $230 million contract, but for a, an entire season, I think leaves him adrift. I don't think it helps John Morant. So, I, you know, that 17 to 21 range maybe is where Woj is living. I've thought about 41, but 41 might be too stiff given that there wasn't a crime. I agree. Like, I think I think even 17 may be a little excessive in my mind because he, he's not breaking the law. And I understand that it's a bad look and it's bad optics for the NBA and he's not being a role model. And kids love him. Like, my son loves him. He loves John Moran, one of his favorite players. But, like, Ja isn't – he doesn't have to necessarily be a role model. Like, that's not what it should be. And, I don't, you know, he kind of does what he wants. He's not breaking the law. I don't – it just seems excessive to suspend a guy for a fourth of the season – when he technically didn't break laws, like he's just being a goofball, having fun on the internet, thinking it's fun and it's dangerous, but he thinks he's having a good time. He's just trying to, you know, be cool on there. I don't. It just is a weird situation, John, because we haven't seen anything like this. But I don't know. Twenty games seems like a lot. All right. So Kendrick Perkins saying he needs to get out of Memphis. Kind of. It was interesting because I kind I start to go. Well, wait a minute. Are we blaming Memphis for the problem that John Moran is having? That you know, let's let's make sure we direct the blame where it belongs. John Morant. John Morant is the person who is showing bad judgment. You can't blame Memphis. You can't blame the Grizzlies. It, Blazer fans know better than anybody. I think the Blazer organization, in some respects, got a bad rap from some of the misbehavior that was going on during the Jail Blazers era. I think I think the organization was responsible for collecting a pool of talent that was deficient. Uh, you know, the culture was deficient. But I also think you can't blame Portland for what happens in the Blazers' locker room. You can't blame Memphis for John Morant. But I think what Kendrick Perkins is trying to say is his own well-being, a change of scenery, sometimes is what you need. Now, do you think Memphis has anything to do with this? I don't. I think that take from Kendrick Perkins is more on the court. I think I think on yeah. the court they need some veteran leadership. You know, and you saw the immaturities they had when they played the Lakers and lose to them in six games with Dylan Brooks and John Morant. But like off the court, I mean, what is what are they supposed to do? They're just gonna have someone follow John Morant and babysit him all the time. That's not gonna work. Yeah. You can't do that. Do, yeah. The, do you think um, Silver's doing this right by waiting? Because I I kind of think yes, there's a gravity to what he's doing, but. I, I think it's a disservice to the fans when you're when media and the two teams that are now playing this off day has now been consumed not by talk about the Denver Nuggets but 
talk about what Adam Silver meant. I think they also it's a it's a miss because I think they could also address it on the coverage of the NBA Finals and say, look, like yeah. this is you know we're trying to almost embarrass John Moran at this point and say, you know what, we're going to talk about this in front of everybody on the biggest stage. Yeah, we have uncovered additional information and we've made a decision, but we're going to announce it after the NBA Finals. Don't try that with your kids over the weekend. Uh, all right, I uh, appreciate everybody who makes this show part of your day. Uh, for those of you who want to grab a podcast of today's show, you can get it uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search for John Canzano or Bald Face Truth. We're back next week with great shows, big guests. Have a great weekend, everybody. Enjoy the sunshine.